0: This week, we welcome Chris Long, a security engineer at Planeteer, for a technical segment about Detection Lab, a collection of Vagrant and Packer scripts that allow you to automate the creation of networks. In the security news, 5G networks must be secured from hackers says congressperson zero day vulnerability highlights the responsible disclosure dilemma a flaw in multiple airline systems exposes passenger data security bugs in video chat tools enable remote hackers and an original world world war ii german message decrypts uh to go on display message decrypts sorry to go on display at the national museum of computing in our final segment, we air a pre recorded interview with InfoSec World speaker Connie Mostovich, the senior security compliance analyst at Reclamere. I think I said all that right. To talk about the dark web, all that and more on this episode of Paul's Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly for security professionals by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady. It's Paul's Security Weekly. Netsparker, the developers of desktop and cloud-based web application security scanners that enable you to automatically identify vulnerabilities in your web applications and web services. Netsparker scanners employ a unique and dead-accurate vulnerability scanning engine that automatically verifies vulnerabilities with their proof-of-concept. For more information, visit them on the web at netsparker.com or email at contact at netsparker.com. Organizations' internal networks are overly permissive and can't distinguish trusted from untrusted applications. Attackers abuse this condition to move laterals through networks, bypassing address-based controls to spread malware. Edgewise abstracts security policies away from traditional network controls that rely on IP addresses, ports, and protocols, and instead ties controls directly to applications. Edgewise allows organizations to analyze the network attack surface and segment workloads based on the software and how it's communicated. Edgewise monitors applications and protects data paths using zero-trust segmentation. Visit edgewise.net forward slash securityweekly to get your free month of visibility. Some restrictions apply.
1: Like a pork rind and coffee enema, he makes your heart go pity pat. The sexy comedy stylings of Paul Asadorian live from the Goodyear Blimp
0: right now. Welcome to Paul's Security Weekly. This is, in fact, episode 593, recorded February 7th, 2019. We're here in G Unit Studios in Rhode Island. To my left, the Doctor, Doctor Doug White, yeah, is in the I, house. I am
1: in the house or What's here. Going on. I, well, we're drinking,
0: we're drinking some tawny port. I'm tawny port. <laughs> Actually, tawny is, it's it, is tawny tawny port. it is tawny port. No, it's tawny. It's not not tawny like torn paper. Like a stripper. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my name is Tony. <laughs> It's more like the, st- <laughs> the stripper version of Tawny. Well, no, it's a Tawny port. It's a, I don't know. What do you know about port? I don't know. I, don't know. I know it tastes. Well, bought aged stripper brand. I don't no, know. No, this was a birthday gift, Doug. It's called <laughs> Sandy Man. <laughs> Sandiman, Sandiman? Tawny. It's called Sandiman it's a- Tawny port. Sandiman, it's very good, yeah. It is it's delicious. Quite,
1: quite high quality port. I
0: was t- always told that this went very well with cigars. It does. And, and lots of I cigar. agree with all those people it's that told me that, because it, yeah. it is pairing very nicely. It is very nice with the cigar. Even El Cheapo Robusto. Even the El Cheapo Robusto. El Cheapo <laughs> Robusto. <laughs> it's Doug's new brand of cigar. Yeah. Out, available, and fine mini-marts everywhere. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and we've got wine and and beer. I'm still finishing from... It's going to be a long show. Buckle up, folks. That's all, right, all so I'm so saying. Good. On the lines remotely, Mr. Jeff Mann is here with us. Jeff, Welcome. Happy to be here as always, Paul. But
2: sure, wish I was in the studio.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, you do, because uh, it's pretty good stuff we got going on over here in terms of uh, spirits and cigars. Jeff, I, I did get your email by the way. I think people think that like all the hosts like talk to each other all the time.
3: Yeah, really, we don't get to, every I, night. I, we don't. I like your idea. <laughs>
0: I think we should do a show on PCI. See, there, I said it publicly, so now we have to. Uh, well, Jeff, it's out there. It's out there now. So yeah, I Perfect. think it's it's a good idea to do that cool. jeff and i were watching
1: reruns of i love lucy last night over the phone <laughs> <laughs> what will she do next jeff oh god did you fall lucy! asleep on the phone <laughs> also
0: we'll
2: with I'm us home.
0: remotely is mr lee neely lee welcome
4: hey good to be here from idaho it's uh beautiful weather out here would like to hang with you guys in the studio we got to get my butt down there one of these times or two of these times
0: do you like cigars lee of
4: course. no, oh,
0: Well, you you're gonna fit right in and have some cigars and spirits.
4: Looking forward to it.
0: Absolutely. Um, so, what do we have next? Announcements. Thank you, Doug. So, the RSA Conference is coming up on March 4th through the 8th in San Francisco. You can go to rsaconference.com forward slash securityweekly-us19 to register now using a discount code. The U is uniform, Doug. So, it's five uniform, uniform ni- fiver, uniform, Fife. niner. Niner. F- Fife, Fife. You're, like now F- you're messing F- with F- me no, now it's people the, are going to send me tweets
4: no
1: it's Fife, it, FIFE is what you're supposed to say that's the official,
0: no it is we'll see if the internet agrees with you or not uh-huh. so uh, now I'm told it is Fife uniform Niner Sierra Whiskey Foxtrot Delta mm-hmm. to receive $100 off a full conference pass, right,
1: you have to say it with a southern accent too though so you sound like Chuck Yeager Five Uniform, Niners, uh, Sierra, (laughs) Whiskey, Foxtrot Delta. Unload
0: all your pods on my position. (laughs) That was awesome. Uh, If you're interested in booking an interview with Security Weekly or a briefing at RSA, you can go to securityweekly.com forward slash conference request. Submit your request to us. We'd love to do a briefing with you. Well, provided I'm Matt and I pick you (laughs) from the list of people that we get to do briefings with because we can't do briefings with everyone. Uh, and then we hope that you do an interview with us because they're yeah. going to air on Enterprise Security Weekly. I mean, they cost money and stuff, but it's well worth it, in it my is. opinion. Not like that I'm bias. getting into Studio anything. 54. They have a velvet
1: rope, and I stand out there and
0: make fun of your clothes. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Chris Long is here with us tonight. Sorry to keep you waiting, Chris. Uh, he is a security engineer at uh, Palantir who's been specializing in detection engineering for the last decade. Uh, he is focused on detection, is OSCP and OSCE certified. But came up with a really cool project because we're not even going to talk about that stuff. We're going to talk about his really cool project called Detection Lab, which allows you to test stuff in the lab. And here to tell you more about it is none other than Chris Long. Welcome, Chris.
5: Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Nice to have you, my friend. Uh, When you presented this to me, I was like, I really need that. And Chris like, yeah, I got a lot of things I want to do with it. I'm like... You should come on the show and talk about it, and mm-hmm. then hopefully people will hear it and they're like, oh, I like that and have time to help you. Fadi, you got
1: to watch this. Fadi, I'm telling you, out there, wherever <laughs> you are. I know you're watching, so listen to this, it's important.
0: So, Chris, what was the uh, problem you were trying to solve initially with this uh, project?
5: Yeah, coming into the project, I had this realization that like red teamers have something like Kali, like a distro dedicated to what they do on a day-to-day basis. Uh, And as defenders, we kind of have piecemeal like forensics tools here and there. Uh, And if you want to go ahead and spin up like a realistic lab environment, that's a ton of work typically. Like it involves spinning up multiple VMs, generally creating like active directory. Then you have to go ahead and like set up the centralized logging and set up you know all the logging and auditing settings to match what you want yeah but chris that's not like, i mean i just isn't that what the intern does is that <laughs> <laughs> if, if you're lucky enough to have one but if you want to do something like this at home uh you know like you're stuck doing it yourself or sure. you know i, I uh, assume
2: you're 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 talking as if you're replicating what's in production right
5: Yeah, it it could be. uh, Or I think that's like generally the use case. I mean, it could be for whatever you want, uh, really. But what I really wanted was like a really simple way to take all that work and distill it down to like a few simple steps uh, and have code do the work for me rather than me, you know, clicking through all these settings and setting up active directory. So that was like kind of the idea behind all of this. Um, So, effectively, what it is uh, is a collection of, like, Packer and Vagrant scripts. If you're not familiar with those tools, uh, it's part of the HashiCorp suite. Um, And Vagrant, for example, allows you to uh, take, like, a lot of automation steps on top of virtual machines. Um, So, that's what does a lot of the heavy lifting here. It's kind of
0: like like Docker containers, but for virtual machines is the way I understood it. And I've worked with Vagrant a a little bit.
5: Yeah, I think that's, like, a fair uh, comparison. Um, And so that's what does the heavy lifting. And so what happens uh, when you run like the build script for detection lab is it spins up uh, an Ubuntu host that kind of serves as like the centralized logging engine. And then it spins up an active directory uh, consisting of a domain controller, uh, a host that's dedicated to Windows event forwarding, and then a Windows 10 host that kind of is meant to simulate like uh, maybe like an employee workstation or something like that. Um, And then on top of that, you've got all sorts of uh, tooling. So you have IDS and connection logging with Bro and Suricata is pre-configured. You have, like, Windows event logs are turned up to basically 10, and they're all feeding into a centralized Splunk instance. Uh, Sysmon and OS query endpoint security tooling is on all of the hosts. Uh, And I even, like, preload some, like, attack tools that I think uh, folks might commonly want to use, like Mimikatz and Powersploit. Um, if you wanted to see what the what kind of artifacts or logs those tools generate when they're being used, uh, this is like the perfect perfect environment to do it in um, so there's there's no like uh, one use case for this it's it's just getting all of that stuff automated so you can do whatever you want with it.
0: That's really cool yeah I want it I have I have a question go ahead Jeff. Uh, uh,
2: assuming you have some sort of uh, gold image or some sort of um, You know, base install for systems that you might be that might be part of this environment. Do you have the ability to sort of, you know, feed that in somehow to to continue the automation process?
5: yeah uh so i think that's probably what you would do with packer so i i supply in the github repo kind of like a template of how those like Google images will look um but you could absolutely replace those templates with uh your own like images and kind of build on top of those so yeah, yeah. absolutely
0: so uh, chris let, let's back up for those that don't uh we'll start with vagrant for those that don't understand vagrant uh there is uh is it like an xml is it xml file that you build uh, so Usually no. JSON, I think. J- its a, like a JSON file. It's similar to, uh, like Ansible, right? Like, wh- what is that file? I feel like there's another name for the file that you, the configuration file. But it's like a tagging uh, kind of you know config file language that you'd build in Vagrant. But you can put some logic in there too inside of Vagrant, correct?
5: Yeah, so it's called a Vagrant file, and that's effectively where you specify like what steps uh, you want to be taken. But essentially, all you're doing, uh, at least in this case, is calling like, a bunch of PowerShell, PowerShell scripts uh, to do all the work for you. So, I you. so Vagrant, Vagrant files is just the like, VM, hey, run all these scripts. Yeah, yeah,
0: and then go run all these scripts on the operating system. And then so uh, you could customize that yourself, obviously, right? The, the Vagrant file is, is customizable, right? It's open source Your your project, so you could do that. Um, but now what is the what is the packer what is Packer
5: so Packer is like uh, an image creation tool so that's what takes uh, like code that says hey like create a like server 2016 image uh, and then it creates it into like a I don't know if it's proprietary format but it creates like a box file and that's what vagrant uses as like its base image effectively
0: so does it do- go ahead and download like the ISO image of Windows yep. and then from that create a box file which is like a VM File like a VMware would be .vmware or whatever, right? And then spins it up? Exactly. That's And awesome. so
5: these work with uh, both VirtualBox and VMware. So uh, it's all cross-platform. Uh, all you need is, uh, you know, an operating system, uh, either VirtualBox or VMware, uh, and a copy of uh, Vagrant and Packer, which are both free uh, to get started. So, uh, you know, very low uh, barrier to entry here. Mm.
0: Now, have you wrapped the vagrant and the packer things together with something? Or
5: yeah, yep. There's a PowerShell build script and there's like a, a POSIX space build script, so uh, should work for uh, all operating systems. Uh, inside the repo, it's just build.sh or build.ps1, okay. um, and that'll allow you to like I have pre-built boxes for folks if they want to download them rather than spending the time like manually building them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then lately, I'm also working on getting this all into Terraform. Uh, so you'll literally just go in and hit Terraform apply, and then this lab will be live in AWS in like 15 minutes.
0: Wow, that's really cool. And I, I suppose you could do the same thing for AWS or Google or any of the cloud providers, right? Yeah, exactly.
1: That's awesome. That's I really want
0: cool, it. Cool, right? I'm gonna get it after a while. Uh, so, uh, so uh, Chris, take us through each of the individual systems uh, one by one, if you could.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So there's the logger host. Um, and that's kind of what I envisioned as being like the place where all the logs would effectively be centralized. So uh, it's running Bro and Suricata. So it's doing traffic so this is monitoring. The Ubuntu.
0: So this is the Ubuntu system. This is the Ubuntu box. Right. Yep, well, I'm sorry. That's okay. With all the logs uh, that go to it, uh, Bro and Suricata. Are there interfaces yep. for Bro and Suricata as well?
5: Uh, Not necessarily. Uh, they are logging centrally to Splunk, which is also okay. on that instance as well. Yep. Um, so you can just hop in and it's index equals Splunk, or sorry, index equals Suricata or index equals bro. Uh, that'll get you those logs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also running uh, a tool uh, built by Mitre called Caldera. It's their open source adversary simulation tool. Mm-hmm. So you can basically have it simulate an APT attack and it'll go through and actually run like actual attacks uh, on the hosts themselves. Um, so yeah how was it that? That they
0: did they they had a lot of bugs to fix early on it did they did they fix... I think
5: it's in pretty good shape right now okay but yeah show. it's effectively there's like effectively like a rat on all of the systems uh that connects uh back mm. to like the caldera server um, and it just goes and talks to them and says hey go run these attack simulations uh and then it's also running uh, an os query management tool called Fleet um, so that allows you to interface yes. with like the OS query agents like directly and run queries against the hosts, and it's also what does like the centralized logging for OS query as well. Uh, and then from there, uh, you have uh, the host called DC, which is uh, the domain controller. Um, so that is effectively just doing that um, on all of the Windows hosts. You have uh, Sysmon and OS query uh, as endpoint security tools. Uh, Olaf Hartong has like a really in depth. Uh, sysmon config that I'm using uh, he's like clearly put a ton of time into it and uh, it's like very well uh, like documented and commented to explain like what types of events it's trying to pick up um, and what, what was and the then, other
0: tool aside from sysmon that you said
5: uh, OS query Chris? okay oh,
0: okay so OS query and sysmon are both running and Fleet is the Linux tool that runs to look at all the stuff from OS query on all the hosts
5: yeah, that's correct. So all the OS query agents uh, uh, they can run in standalone, but I think it's like great to connect them to something like Fleet, where you can interface with them directly, and you have the like added benefit of centralized logging if you do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Awesome.
5: Then moving on, uh, you have the WEF host, uh, which is basically running a Windows event forwarding or or collection server. Um, I think Windows event forwarding is like not something uh, many people are actually familiar with. Like you can forward Windows event logs uh, to a Windows event collector service without needing like any third party software. Like a lot of people install. Uh, you know, just like Logstash or Splunk or whatever to collect all those logs. Um, but Windows has like the capability to do it natively. So it'll it spit
0: it'll that's... take in Windows event logs and it'll spit out standard Unix or POSIX uh,
5: syslogs? Uh, so it accepts like Windows event logs from a bunch of hosts and it saves them like natively uh, as Windows event logs. But what that ultimately means is you only need like a single forwarder on those hosts rather than putting like a forwarder on every single host you want to collect Windows event logs from. And gotcha. you have the added benefit of saying, "I only care about these specific event logs." So you get to kind of pick and choose, mm-hmm. um, and that prevents you know you from like overwhelming things or, or not collecting like the right events. Um, so we actually at Palantir have an open source repo to help folks get started with Windows event forwarding. Just as an aside, uh, there's a lot to it, but I think our repo like really helps uh, abstract away a lot of the work. Nice. Um, and then lastly, uh, going to the Windows 10 host. Um, nothing super special there, uh, except for the fact that, you know, it's windows 10, um, kind of meant to emulate like an employee workstation. Um, and has like the same set of tooling that the other, that the other hosts do.
0: That's
5: awesome. That's awesome. Uh, oh, sorry. One other thing I meant to, uh, mention is, uh, on the web host as well. It's running uh, Microsoft ATA, which I believe is advanced threat analytics. Correct, um, yes. so if you're, if you're doing, you know, weird stuff in active directory, um, that's that's what that's there for so if you're a red teamer you may and you run into an environment where they're running you know they're running uh microsoft ata like maybe you want to go ahead and start in this lab and see if the stuff that you do on a Mm day-to-day basis is going to get picked up before you start hammering away in like a production environment and get caught on day one
0: in all those events on the windows event forwarding host uh get sent into splunk that's cool that's cool
1: and so, if I if I just jump in there on Packer, can I just add a whole bunch of other like if I want to put something like an LDAP server or something in there, I can just go in there and add the and the image for that, and and it'll it'll be part of this whole thing.
5: Yep, absolutely. You can add hosts. You can remove hosts. Like folks might want to like also spin up like a Kali host as part yeah. of this network if they want like the attack side right uh, to be part of the network. So yeah, absolutely customizable in that sense.
1: That's really
5: is, cool.
2: Is there any? Uh or what are the limitations in terms of operating systems that you can spin up?
5: Uh, I think theoretically, like anything you can make an image for, you can spin up, uh, the limitation you start running into on like local workstations is like how much RAM do you have on the box that you're running this on? How much like disk space? Uh, you know, I think most people don't have like 30, more than 32 gigs of RAM on like a single host. Um, you know, if it's like a laptop or something like that. So that, I think, begins to become the limitation. But if you're going to be spinning this stuff up in the cloud, like, the limitation starts to, you know, disappear. So it's a, then it turns into how much money do you want to spend on the lab, so...
0: Yeah, but this is basically Linux, Windows. I mean, you could potentially do Mac OS in a VM. Can you even do that? I have never...
3: I've never yeah, I'm not sure about it. the licensing around that. Yeah, I've never yeah, tried would, to...
1: Oh, well, speaking of that, Chris, what about the licensing? So if I'm, I mean, am I? do I need to go in these images and tweak the licensing before I, I spin them up?
5: No, uh, some of them are running, like, all of the copies of Windows uh, are running, like, eval licenses. Okay. So they do, like, expire over yeah. time. So if yeah, you have if the same temp- lab image uh, for, I think it's, like, 180 days, uh, it might expire. Uh, but if you rebuild the lab, uh, because it's syspreps, it resets the timer. So, uh, yeah. You can just like re spin up the whole lab and uh, be back to uh, be back to good.
1: I have 192 terabytes of RAM on my VM server. So I could probably spin up a pretty, pretty good one.
0: That's a lot of RAM.
1: That's a lot of RAM. It was a, it was a test project for, uh, we were trying to, we were trying to run at least 300 desktops at the same time. Wow. So with graphics. Wow. Yeah. Yeah.
4: So that's, you're going to get IO bound with that. I don't know.
1: I, I, it seems to work okay. It, it, we, I think the most we ever hit was uh, I think we hit two hundred and thirty six one time, and they were all running. I don't know how heavy they were running. We didn't really benchmark it, so mm. but it was like people actually using it. Architecture students.
4: So well, now if we, only we knew somebody who had a script that would build a lab. As I know. As I've, I've, been, I've been
1: for years. <laughs> I've been going. If there was only a script.
0: I think a lot of us have been. Uh, I
1: could see that. just how big that thing could get.
5: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. so Oops. On the other Go end, ahead,
4: what's the smallest you'd try this on?
5: Uh, sorry, say it again.
4: Oh, yeah, what's the, what's what's the smallest you'd try and do this on? I mean, we talked about, you know, getting gargantuan, but you know what would be the minimum laptop I fished out of the closet before I tandy one thousand.
5: <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> oh, if, you're, man, if, if you're doing this from heart. scratch <laughs> Uh, I would say probably like fifty to sixty gigs of disk space. Uh, you probably want sixteen gigs of RAM because you are going to be running, you know, four VMs at once on top of your host OS. Um, so that would probably be like the the minimum I'd run it on.
4: That's not bad. No, that's pretty. That's pretty awesome.
5: Good. Yeah, I mean, I run it on my thirteen inch MacBook that's like four years old. So uh, it runs it runs pretty decently. Did
0: you do any like tuning to make it run? you know, more universally on, you know, smaller systems, larger systems or whatever?
5: Yeah, I just tried to like strip out as much of like the cruft for like Windows 10 as I could. Uh, you know, they just could keep adding more and more. Um, so stripped out as much of that. Um, just like turn off services that are like probably not necessary. So like um, Windows update on all the Windows servers, like you don't want them like downloading and processing updates in the background, like while mm. you're just trying to use it as a lab. Um, So it's like typically small things like that. But, yeah, there's only like so much you can strip out before, uh, you know, to make it a smaller footprint. Yeah, exactly. That's (laughs) cool.
1: I mean, I really like that idea that you could run that on a laptop. So if you're just trying to practice up and and Mm -hmm. you want something quick. Because one of the problems you have for that, for students or for somebody that's trying to study, is just the amount of time it takes to build all that stuff out and get it all tweaked. And then half the time you didn't tweak it right, and it's not going to be consistent. And if you got this nice script, you can just go, "Pip, let me try." Oh, it sucked. Let me try again. I'm going to do something different. And
0: that said, you should, if you're learning, build things from scratch. Well, you you should get that experience. But absolutely, even when you start learning, you know pick and choose where you want to start you don't necessarily have to start with like installing and building well no i but you want you're learning
1: pen testing yeah, you so want you, you want a place to practice pen right. testing and you know you can worry about building images later or, right. or before you may already know how to do that it just takes a lot of time if you know how to do it it just takes time
0: yep but
2: it, it sounds like they at least have to build it once just to, to be able to create the script in order to automate it so yeah. there's some ut- utility building there and and chris what i was getting at just to cut to the chase is i i wonder if there's an application for this for uh, the endpoints that are in my world which are more often uh, point of sale systems Uh, you know, rather than, you know, desktops or user workstations, where very often you're having older versions of Windows or embedded versions of Windows or Mm -hmm. compact edition versions of Windows, but it would be great, uh, maybe not from a pen testing perspective, but that too, but also from just sort of a lab perspective trying to get things to work, which it sounds like, you know, if in theory you can you know, get past licensing issues and whatnot, it would be great to be able to have sort of a virtual, uh, you know, store set up that has all your different point of sale systems.
5: Yeah, that would be really cool. Uh, I can't say that I've tried, uh, using like older or uh, like embedded versions of windows. Um, hmm. but effectively I, I think theoretically it should work and there shouldn't be any like obvious limitation to doing that. So uh, I want to cautiously say, yeah, that should be totally possible. Uh, but yeah, have not tried. Jeff just wants you
1: to build him a Windows 3.1 box so he can. <laughs> <laughs> I, I,
2: no Windows 95 would do because I have my go. old uh, DVDs of Zork that I want to uh, play. Ah,
1: there you go. That's what I was thinking too.
0: <laughs> there were projects that uh, can emulate when the older yeah, Microsoft no, are. operating systems. you can get systems, emulators yeah. and things like that to run that. Yeah, stuff. I think you need DOS special emulators. I think you need special emulators though. Chris, right? I mean, the operating system you're running a very modern, and you have a nice, repeatable process. I'm sure you could probably choose a different architecture and run some of the older ones with other emulators.
5: Yeah, I like. I suspect as long as it's supported in like VirtualBox or VMware, it, uh, it could probably be part of the lab.
1: Yep, we got DOS to run on on VirtualBox. So
0: well, there you go. Yeah,
1: I mean, like actual DOS. We had all the floppy disks, and we installed it, because I knew this person who was trying to run old Fortran programs that that he had a compiler for DOS. It was like, yeah, it
2: worked. Well, Duggar Lee, Lee, maybe you could remember the details better than I can. What was the great uh, divergence point for Windows? Was it 2000, where the architecture?
1: 3.0. 3.0. No, <laughs> no, it was two thousand. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, nt four to two thousand. But there was a divergence yeah. point between three and three point one because three didn't work and three point one did. So. Well, there's that. Yeah,
5: I guess but. the uh, the limitation is it's like probably going to have to support like Ethernet. I don't know if you could hook up like token ring to this. So, uh. yeah, yeah, you'd have to build you'd have to build a
1: stack or something to get it to work. So.
0: Uh, there's emulators for all
1: kinds. There of things. is. You can get you can get stack emulators and, uh, and you, or you could put uh, I don't know.
0: You could put something on there. Or you could get what Chris provided and it would probably work every time.
3: Yeah.
4: <laughs> but, you know, we well, like to break things. The, that was one of the points I thought was really awesome. Is you you know, you're mentioning you get somebody who's who's not really up on on building the environment. He can freaking build a work known working environment every time with this. Yep. And it seems like you could even. Maybe create a library of different environments for different kinds of tests or something.
0: Sure.
4: You know, maybe Jeff could create the PCI build. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Uh,
5: Speaking of like repeatability, so that was like an issue I ran into early on is like there were intermittent failures because when you're dealing with a project that's this big, there's so many dependencies, there's so many things, small things that can change that can like cause a build to fail or something. Uh, so one of the things that I did as well is I created like a continuous integration build. So basically every week on Saturday, uh, Detection Lab has like a scheduled build and uh, gets kicked off and uh, we verify that, you know, uh, the entire build process uh, will be successful and each host comes up and each host is able to talk to each other and all the tools that are installed are uh, still good to go. Um, yeah, I wanted Chris, people to, be awesome. able to like. But you Log say into this tool and oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that's
0: awesome. But you say we is are there other people collaborating with you on this project or are you in need or want other people <laughs> helping It's the royal
5: we? <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I actually didn't even realize I said we uh, there have been contributors to the project. The uh, the continuous integration stuff has been me, uh, but there have also been people that have contributed to detection lab. So I guess in a, in a broad sense, we
0: gotcha. And so are you looking for more people to help contribute as well?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's contribution guidelines uh, right in the repo. Um, and if anyone has things that they think would be uh, improvements or like positive changes to the project, they're always encouraged to open a PR or if they run into bugs, uh, open an issue. Uh, I'm pretty active uh, looking at them. This is like something I do in my free time. So it's not, you know, I'm not 24 seven on this. But uh, when there's stuff I can fix, I definitely do fix it. It's awesome. Great.
0: Chris, anything else you want to, about the project you want to share with our audience, uh, especially where you find it?
5: Uh, yeah, so the easiest way to find it, uh, the URL is detectionlab.network, uh, or you could just look it up on GitHub. Uh, my username there is Kwong. Um, yeah, the only thing I wanted to say, uh, I wanted to thank Don Murdoch because he actually spun up a GoFundMe uh, and was the one who introduced me to you guys. So uh, thank you to him for spinning up the GoFundMe to kind of fund further development of the lab. Uh, and I just wanted to thank everyone who's uh listening and uh everyone who's contributed to it so far and obviously you guys for having me on the show today.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you Chris. That's detection.network. And it's in the show That's, notes on the wiki, so you okay. can, wiki you can dot it to it yeah. com. Yeah. So if you want to
1: grab it off there.
0: Awesome, Chris. Thank you. So, oh, wait. We do we have to we have to do 5 questions. You got to ask him 5 we questions. We got to do five questions. 5 questions. He has a script to answer them. That's right. <laughs> He's going to build a virtual version of himself to answer So, Chris, are you ready to play five questions with Security Weekly? Sure. Why not? Chris, three words to describe yourself.
5: Uh, Tenacious, impatient, and dedicated.
0: Chris, if you were a serial killer, what would be your weapon of choice?
5: I don't know why a shovel was like the first thing that popped in my head. So hey, let's did you go with look that. at
0: a shovel? Because you looked to your right. Uh, I yeah. you like, <laughs> what did <laughs> I <laughs> use <aren't> right. No <laughs> <shovels> <laughs> to my right, I'm not like in a garage. <laughs> Those dead bodies hanging over there. What did <laughs> I use to kill them? They're not they going to bury themselves. It's a, it's hey, a Mr. Gimp,
5: what did I use it's on a, you? It's, it's, you know,
1: multi purpose. <laughs> it was awesome. That was perfect. Yeah. Chris,
0: <laughs> if you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be?
5: Oh, man. Uh,. Infinite computer rage.
0: Chris, <laughs> you seem like a pretty happy guy though. Now, this question's easy. There's only two possible answers. And it's, so it's multiple choice, and there's only two. All right, you ready? In the popular game of Ask Grabby Grabby, do you prefer to go first or second? First. See how easy that is? <laughs> Chris, choose two celebrities to be your parents. Alive, dead, fictional, or otherwise. Or even missing. <laughs> Oh, man, like Jeff Alien. Goldblum
5: as my dad. Awesome choice. Loved him in Jurassic Park. Uh, and Judy Dench as my mom. Wow, that'd be cool. Mm, and eclectic. Oh, I feel like you could have like they're like spy parents or something. And
1: there'd be jazz. And
5: there'd be jazz. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum's a great jazz pianist. I, I knew I knew that. Yeah. He's great. <laughs> they just seem like nice people. I don't know. Never hear anyone talking shit about either of those people. So There you
0: go. <laughs> well, Chris, thank you very much for appearing on Security Weekly Detection to check out Chris's project. Uh, thank you very much, Chris. Without take a short break, come back and we'll do the stories for this week. How about that? Endgame's converged endpoint security platform is transforming security programs. their people, processes, and technology with the most powerful endpoint protection and simplest user experience, ensuring analysts of any skill level can stop targeted attacks before information theft. Endgame unifies prevention, detection, and threat hunting to stop known and unknown attacker behaviors at scale with a single agent. For more information, visit endgame.com. The average time between being hacked and realizing you've been hacked is one year. Can you afford to let an intruder roam your network for that long? Can your company weather the fallout when this comes to light? Black Hills Information Security can find the bad guys in your network and train you to do it yourself. Email consulting at blackhillsinfosec.com to find out how a hunt teaming engagement can help you find a persistent threat in your network. Welcome back, everyone, to All Security Weekly. This is the security news. I have a, a live read for Recorded Future. Don't I have their actual read? Isn't it on paper somewhere? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Wanna, I'll do, well, the other announcement's Infosec World. So, Infosec World's going to be really great. We're going to go to Disney World. That's, that's going to be is. awesome. April 1st through the 3rd. It's always if fun. We, if, Literally, if we show up early, can we go with your family to Disney World too? Absolutely, provided you have your own Disney passes. You may come to Disney World with me. More than happy to have company. Not yeah. a problem. I want to ride the teacups with you. You can ride <laughs> teacups. You can. We usually do It's a Small World, Jeff. It's awesome. Yes. You have to do lots of shots before It's a Small World. Oh, yes. Like yes. Tequila Not shots. Not before the teacups, though. Oh, no. I thought you did shots during the teacups. <sighs> uh, no. It's <laughs> infosecworld.misty.com. Come, come to... Infosec World, come to Disney World with us. OS19-SecWeek is your discount code. You save 15% off. Now, I would like to uh, read about our dear friends at Recorded Future. Uh, they help security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging th- threats with real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future... Security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. To get started, make sure you go to RecordedFuture.com forward slash Security Weekly. Sign up for their Recorded Future Cyber Daily, which is awesome because it gives you the information you need every day to your inbox, especially if you're doing this kind of thing. Every day, you will receive an email with the top results for trending, technical indicators, cyber news, exploited vulnerabilities, suspicious IP addresses, and more. Sounds like something I really need to subscribe oh, to yeah. uh, as well. I, th- I I think I did, actually. I uh, already su- did, yeah. <laughs> Subscribe just, today. Stay ahead of those cyber attacks. Uh, like I said, if you are working um, in a sock as a sock analyst that would be something or even of a requirement not, like just, a free it's thing like
1: a great thing to glance over when you you know just to see what's there and uh, Absolutely. and I love those blocked uh, those bad IPs so it gets you obsessed and you have to get in there and blacklist could, all yes. the babies yeah so I'd get, yeah
0: cuz you read that stuff and you're like
1: I got to go oh my god
0: is that in my network that's not yeah. in my network <laughs> well yeah when you see yourself in the list yeah <laughs> oh the wait that's my IP yeah. <laughs> hey, shit I just blacklisted myself <laughs> shit yeah uh uh, ooh, Do I have to read Extra Hop too? No? Maybe? <laughs> you better. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Yes, you do. Yeah, I think I you do should. have to read it. I Hold definitely on. think you I'm, should. I'm rewinding. It says, Hold on. Paul, please read. It does. Registration <laughs> is now open for the first Security Weekly webcast of 2019. This one's going to be really awesome. We had the prep call today. And uh, Matt is one of the uh, people from extra hop and him and I were nerding out like already <laughs> so like basically it's going to be a nerd uh, a network security nerd fest uh, it's called rise above complex workflows practical ways to accelerate incident response with extra hop you can go to securityweekly.com forward slash webcasts that's our new URL to register for any of our webcasts securityweekly.com forward slash webcasts. write it down tattooed on your arm or something. Uh but that's gonna be a great webcast with extra hop.
1: Uh yeah, very you much. You gotta put uh, put Henry Rollins on there as a lead in it's rise above.
0: Right. Rise
1: yes. above.
3: Rise above.
0: So securityweekly.com forward slash what was that Doug? Hmm? Webcasts. Webcast
3: <laughs> webcast <laughs> <Webcasts. Webcasts. Webcasts.
0: laughs> forward
1: slash what? webcasts. Yeah I didn't know there was gonna be a test. <laughs> <laughs> You're a
0: professor you should
1: um, I don't take tests, I give them oh <laughs> yeah. right. He doesn't grade them either. That's right. I just throw them on the steps. Think,
4: time to top off Doug's drink. He clearly yes. need the refill.
1: I do, yes. Mm-hmm. It's getting slow in here.
0: Yes. Let's get to some stories, which I wasn't hey, really. Can I, can I do a quick announcement before yes. we get to stories? Please do.
2: Just, uh, I just want to point out that today, February 7th, is uh, International Bring Light to Slavery Day. If you want to find out more, go to enditmovement.com. It's in the show notes. But it's all about world slavery and bringing awareness to it so it can be ended. Thank you.
0: It's interesting. There's a, a, a day all the time. It's sometimes important issues such as the one Jeff mentions. Other times it's like Daffodil national. day. Oh. Na, yeah, national like – chocolate cake day or something I don't yeah
2: know. which yeah well there's several organizations that uh, are well there's many organizations in, in, involved in trying to end slavery a lot of it has to do with sex trafficking and uh, especially minors uh and and the busiest day of the year for them is actually the super bowl and the city in which the super bowl is hosted yeah. interestingly Interesting. enough yep um, so, pu- public service announcement, and, and now you have a chance to say something about the Patriots, Paul, because I brought up the Super Bowl.
0: I, I wasn't going to. I mean, we won, <laughs> which is awesome. Number number six. Paul was on the blimp. That's right. It was. Where do they put the blimp at night? I, in they, a blimp hanger? I thought it like, deflates, and it goes in like,
2: someone's do, They buying. put it in a closet.
1: Like when some guy like pulls a little plug on it and stands there like... Yeah. <laughs>
0: It's the behind the scenes. <laughs> Nine hours later, <laughs> uh, so All we right. were uh, drinking. Uh, I know I'll have some more. How about that? So uh, yeah. tawny, <laughs> tawny, sandeman, tawny port, tawny port. Mm-hmm. They are wines usually made from red grapes. Mm-hmm. Go figure, and that are aged in wooden barrels, mm-hmm. exposing them to gradual oxidation and evaporation.
1: Yep.
0: Is that? I'm ignorant here. Is that not how they make regular wine? Don't they ferment it in? But port, they put something
1: in it. I think they put little other port in it, and that makes it turn.
0: Oh, they put brandy in it. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. Which is distilled wine. Yes, it's a blend. Oh, interesting. Oh, if you scroll up
2: from all of our memes, uh, Lee posted a. Yeah, that's what I'm reading. it,
0: It says described as when it's described as tawny, without an indication of age. Which this is yeah. no indication of age, no, right? Non-vintage. Um, all right, let's let's see. What, hold on, I lost my, I lost my place now, <laughs> and I can't see because I'm old. Um, although on this show, I'm I'm the young end of the group. Uh, it's <laughs> a basic blend of wood-aged port that has spent time in wooden barrels. Isn't that what we just? Yeah, it's like it, but it's but just, just a, describe it all a, sounds how so how's it different from wine? It, it is this description wine. but this just. okay. But I mean, what it, makes it, it a port versus a wine? It's just I don't know something about the way it's, distilled
2: distilled it's, it's the it's the, the type of grape and the
4: fact that it's more uh, uh,
2: usually a sweeter wine, more of a dessert wine. Right.
4: That's all. And and that it's fortified with with the brandy. With the brandy, As, with brandy. See, it doesn't yeah.
0: say in your description they put brandy in it though.
4: Well, you, there's uh, brandy's the most common. There are other spirits that can be added. Uh, I gotcha. And then you also get vintage, like you'll get a twenty or twenty tawny port, which is going to be really mellow. Um, whereas the non-vintage one, it's a mix, it's a blend of different ports, whatever the winemaker thought taste would taste good, which is usually a good bet.
0: Mm. Mm. I like it. I'm digging it.
1: It's, it's good. I'm digging it. I mean, we usually drink like Ripple and Night Train, so. <laughs> quite an improvement no we don't we, we drink some decent. no wine. We, we've had good good wine
2: anyway. hey lee why don't you
1: share a story with us yes please do <laughs> save it Jeff. So, move on
4: move on so there was i the, my i wanted to touch on my last one just because it's been in the news so much you know they finally released the updates for the facetime flaws uh ios 1214 osx X ten fourteen three supplemental update that's that's a, m- a mouthful I was doing testing earlier today, and group FaceTime is still disabled on on those, but it's supposedly fixed, it's disabled at the server still. So I'm not sure what's going on there. Um, and the other thing I thought I thought of um, I thought of Joff with my number four story. There was a remote code execution flaw in LibreOffice and OpenOffice. And the it's basically exploiting the path, path, Python. File parser, and you can pass the parameters and all kinds of stuff. And right now, uh, LibreOffice has a patch, OpenOffice does not, but in both cases, you can disable it by getting rid of the uh, Python parser. And uh, I, I just kind of disappointed that they, they had that exploit in there. But then again, we all know pen testers that love to put macros in documents as part of uh, testing. Yep. And
0: uh, last I read, Open Office had not patched that flaw. No. But LibreOffice
4: did. Yeah. Ouch. So like I said, if you don't need the macros, turn it off.
0: Yeah. But people don't. Did uh, a couple of us have stories about 5G? I thought I saw, Lee, you had a... Lee does. Yeah, and I have where the U.S. senator said that 5G networks must be secured from bad actors. I said hackers earlier. Uh, it says the U.S. will need to implement a strategy to protect 5G technology from hackers and state-sponsored bad actors, according to U.S. senator Maria Cantwell uh, at the 5G hearing. I don't understand what what makes 5G so different that all of a sudden we're demanding that it, it be secure. It's one more than four G. Mm.
2: Well, yeah. You know, what makes five G five G? Marketing, right? Well, no, and it's well based on Lee's story where there, you know, there's some flaws and vulnerabilities being discovered in terms of. It said something about the the protocols used by five G versus four G or three G. And I, I'm just curious because I don't know. Maybe I should do the research, but what is it that makes 5G? 5G and is and is it partially tied to protocols? I would think that the protocols would would just sort of elevate up that it's more of a, a lower level, you know, hardware technology that's creating 5G, but or you know, processing power or something. I don't know. Does anybody know?
0: No one really knows much about 5G at this point. I think in general, right. I'm Except there's a lot marketing.
4: of marketing, a lot of concern about using Huawei components to implement 5G for various security reasons. This and right says now, it's, it's a,
1: widely believed to be smarter, faster, and more efficient than 4G, but they don't say don't why that why, that's why that is. Why. Low latency.
4: Low latency, high speed. Low like, latency.
1: I'm reading this
0: from Buzzword oh, Daily. Yeah. So the general theory is that due to the limitations of latency and spotty performance of 4G. That 5G is more like a Wi-Fi connection on your phone rather than a cellular mobile data connection, which, as we all have experienced, can be kind of
1: well. That's what I read was that this this does push the speeds way on up to to more like Wi-Fi yeah. local like LAN type speeds on your phone, which 4G is pretty pretty damn close. I mean, it's not. It's I mean, in terms of you know production, it's uh, it's not effective speeds but it's like or it's
0: not actual speeds you but know, effectively it's, it's I updated really fast. my uh wireless at home it's back to our conversation we having earlier and it's a, a brand new like AC um access point ubiquity and I did the speed test on my phone and I got like pinned hundred meg up, hundred meg down to the internet. And mm. I was like, wow that's pretty impressive for a phone. Yeah. And then I got to thinking if my cable my cabling is really all at least five E. I could probably get more. all so like, my crap off to Amazon. Order some more cats. So I'm just gonna do cat. <laughs> Should I do what? Uh, is it cat seven that does ten gig? Cat six. Cat six, six. E. Six, six. Cat six E will do. Cat 10 six gigs. E. was yeah. just what you said before, yeah, right? Eight.
2: Hey, I I googled it and I got a partial answer. It says five G networks use a type of encoding called OFDM which is similar to encoding in 4G and and it's the encoding that that reduces latency and makes it faster. So again, that doesn't sound like protocols to me. That sounds like sort of un- underlying things that why would there be new vulnerabilities uh, that are unique to 5G? Uh, it's a curiosity.
4: So the 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 thing that got me on this one is that with you know with with 4G and 5G and I guess 3G does it too, there's they're using key, you know, encryption keys to keep the conversation privacy, so that your phone call going over the air is less likely to be intercepted. And what they're finding is the way the keys are managed, you could intercept or or, or get in the middle, and there goes your privacy. Um, I think it's a concern, not so much as it's 5G, is that more and more business is being done on the cell phone, and people have an exp- expectation that it, it, even though it's using a radio signal that could be captured, that it's not. It's encrypted and nobody else can tell what they're saying. Um, slight sarcasm in that comment, I understand. But I, I, uh, think, I think that's why it's got focus. Yeah, I think that w-
0: what I'm reading, about and hearing about 5G is that faster, more reliable, lower latency and has not solved any of the security issues or privacy issues, really, to prevent snooping uh, that exists today yeah. in other mobile uh protocols Hmm. yeah i I gave you the wi-fi password but you're on the slack channel doug i know i need your help my battery's (laughs) almost done i need your help in there
2: (laughs) next yeah i guess i was tripping up on the use the use of the word protocol in this article because it's not i don't think it's the protocol like it's not a new protocol it's it's the protocols that they're using which it sounds like it's probably the same as 4g and it's an implementation of key management that makes sense thank you lee
0: Uh, the zero day vulnerability uh, highlights the responsible disclosure dilemma. So here's what happened. Trustwave Spider Labs uh, found a zero day vulnerability in a video conferencing system and responsibly disclosed that the response from the manufacturer slash uh, you know software developers were was. Our developers are aware of some known vulnerabilities with the systems. Development for these devices has slowed significantly as they are end of life. For those devices that are still under support, we may target future releases. This was written by a true product manager. Oh, yeah.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Although, not to to steal the, the thunder that reminded me of there was an aspect to the Apple story that I thought was really cool. And I apologize for going backwards, but Apple is going to pay a bug bounty to the high schooler who discovered the vulnerability in FaceTime like a week before anybody else. Yay, no, yeah, I was no wondering about that. Took I think that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was wondering about that as we had
2: moved on from the Apple story. Good for him.
4: Yay. Yeah. And I, I, I saw another story on a similar event where somebody was trying to report a vulnerability. I I wish I could remember the details, but basically the help desk was saying, "Ain't, hey, ain't not a pro- ain't a problem here," and it turned out to be a big deal two weeks later. So, I think companies are hopefully wising up to bug reports coming in from all kinds of channels and treating them legitimately. Um, uh, maybe I'm naive. <laughs>
0: So, back to the... Back to zero days. Back to zero days. Um, So, the company is called LifeSize, makes video conferencing systems. Shodan shows there are 372 life-size devices, this is interesting, in universities around the world. The LifeSize website claims tens of thousands of organizations around the world use LifeSize. Why are the Shodan numbers... Specific to universities, but the company's website says across the world and makes no distinction. Because if
1: universities are public entities, you could get that information and you can't get...
2: No,
0: it's showed in, so that that's scan data.
2: It's because education is universal.
0: Maybe because the universities didn't block the scan. <laughs> that could be. I would think they were not the only ones, excuse me, not blocking the scan, but...
1: I have no idea. That's a strange thing. Of course,
0: that's marketing
1: versus reality. It's like we have tens of thousands of customers and, you know, scan show 372.
0: Uh, essentially, it's multiple command injection flaws, mm-hmm. which are trivial to exploit. And oh my God. Input. Uh, I, that's it. I'm done with this story. <laughs> User input is passed direct to the PHP shell underscore exec function. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. But,
2: but, Paul, the, the title of the article was talking about the dilemma of disclosing zero day vulnerabilities okay, yes. so, ahead of uh, the patch becoming available, which, you know, this is maybe an egregious example, but I think it's a
0: fair question to ask. But what do you do, though? If you keep it to yourself and say, well, I don't want to risk a lawsuit from the company. I don't want to seem like the bad person going after the company. I don't want to make it public and cause harm to the public or greater good. I'll just keep it to myself. But if you keep it to yourself or you don't pursue with the company, the company is clearly, clearly not interested in fixing it or overly enthusiastic about fixing it, which means, I mean, they pretty much said in their statement that for stuff that's end of life, we ain't fixing it. Yeah. And for stuff that's, uh, still supported yeah we might maybe you get that product management answer yeah oh i know what i was gonna like, ask what was that no what was the movie with tom hanks uh, with the house uh the money pit the money pit the money, the money pit. Shelley pit. with shelly duvall yeah and they he asked the contractors when you can be done and everyone says two weeks and yeah. it says two weeks of and course. two weeks and it's like six months later that's that's essentially what's happening in here. italy if in italy if they t- if you
1: call down and go uh my my electric meter doesn't work and they go uh, yeah, I'll come fix it tomorrow. It means, it means maybe never. Right. But when they finally start saying, I'll be there in 15 minutes, it means maybe sometime this week. Yeah, and, you know, it's, yeah we learned that. But I had a question for you because I had a student ask me this question. I want to see what everybody thought. A student found a vulnerability in, in something, and he's a very smart student, and, and he wrote me and he said, how long is it considered you know, appropriate to wait after you notify someone of a vulnerability before
0: you go public with it? You gotta have your own policy on that. Well, that's what and, I told him. And, and it well, differs. I think
2: mileage varies, but I think uh, you know three strikes rule, uh, three attempts at contact. I mean, he did he did have some response, and when the response was, yeah, we don't care. I mean, well, I, yeah,
1: I mean that's for I sure. don't I don't have
2: a problem going public after that because I think there is a certain amount of you know, responsibility to the public at large. Yeah, I just told, I told them. you know, send them, notify
0: them, wait a few days. If you don't hear anything from them, like it's, it's on them. There are, are templates for if, you know, you discover a vulnerability and you're contacting the the company. Uh, there's some pretty good ones out there. And usually they're along the lines of like, got to make first initial contact, which can be difficult and take some time. So you don't want to necessarily start the clock, right? Make initial contact. Then there are, is typically some back and forth as you explain the bug and prove to them, send them exploit code and they're like, no, we can't get it at work, right work. Like there's some back and forth. Oh, yes, we've, you know, acknowledged now that that's a vulnerability or not, whatever the case may be. Then they're typically the researcher going, well, I would, you know, am going to go public with this in a certain timeline, um, you know, unless maybe it's, it's kind of difficult because you're giving the company an ultimatum, but you should give them a timeline, right? Yeah and give them an opportunity to say no we need 3 months right try and work that out is really the <laughs> advice that i you know yeah, no, that i like that's... to give and that i've talked with several researchers mm-hmm. about is give them a timeline so like if you have your own timeline you, you got to uh, not necessarily take it on a case by case basis but if you're working with someone you know give them the information and then say you know how long do you need like is, do you want to set a timeline and if they say 3 months but you like to publicly go forward with things after 30 days, then you're going to go with the three months, right? Now, when that three months is up, you got to be like, look, like I'm I'm doing it, going public with it. It's been three months. This is what we agreed upon. They may come back and say, we need another week. Uh, and it's up to you how patient, you know, how many times, and I think a lot of researchers kind of get strung along on this until they finally go. No, I'm not holding us on any longer. Like it, at that point, it has a better chance of being fixed if it's publicly available and there's some public shame involved, customers that are upset. Maybe that pushes the time frame forward in the best case, or maybe the company just never fixes it. So. Yeah,
1: they don't respond at all. I mean, I yeah, mean or they, they in res- this case, they resp- you know he he got in touch with them, they responded, you know, and it was it was all handled. But I mean, it was just one of those things where he I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> And like, I'm sure Trustwave has a. Is policy. the ATM
0: giving you money right now? Can I get down there before you call them? Yeah. And there's a difference between public announcement and releasing of proof of proof of concept code. too. True. Yeah, Although absolutely. with this vulnerability, yeah. all you yeah. have to say is PHP shell exec, and people are going to just go find it. It's, yeah,
2: and this yeah. is all old. You know stuff. what's out of the bag interesting? Uh, you know, to go back to the to the to the Apple bug, the FaceTime thing. You know, we're talking about you know researchers you know, finding a vulnerability and and reporting it to the companies, compare and contrast that with a 14-year-old kid that went to his mom and together they tried to figure out how to get in touch with Apple. And I think if I recall, they initially called support or something like that. Um, You know, not that it's an everyday occurrence that somebody just stumbles up upon a vulnerability that isn't doing the research, but uh, it it is interesting that – you know, the kid found something that he recognized, it was he and his friends, recognized that was a big deal, and he was persistent about it, and, and something finally happened. I wonder what Apple's response would have been if the initial contact had been from, you know, for example, the same guy from Trustwave, Spider Labs, you know, who probably knows who to contact at Apple to get the message across.
1: Yeah, I think that has a big effect on it. it it's, it's It's who's calling. I mean… If, you know, if a big time... Yeah, you're right. I think I agree with you, Jeff, because if you're... Who's,
2: a, who's calling or knowing who to call?
1: And, yeah, calling the help desk so, is not going to get you very far. You have to kind of sort
0: through that.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and that, that can be an arduous process where they're going. I have no idea. Oh,
2: yeah. To
0: answer your question, Doug, from earlier, uh, Trustwave has a policy on this very similar to the one I've outlined. And they say, we will hold the proof of concept for two weeks until Thursday, February 21st in order to give users a chance to apply... The hotfix. So apparently there is a hotfix. At that time, we will release the proof of concept code to provide users, administrators, and network security professionals with the technical details and tools to validate whether they are still vulnerable. This POC will be added directly to the advisory. There you go. That's what I said. Sometimes you do that public announcement in collaboration with the company whose product you found a vulnerability in, sometimes not, but you make that announcement first to let everyone know there's a really bad vulnerability here, mm-hmm. or, I mean, bad is on a scale that we arbitrarily <laughs> get to determine sometimes, but, and then say, I'm not going to release the secret sauce, like make it easy for people to build right. into their scripts. Sure, mm-hmm. if you're looking at one of these products, most of us would probably be able to figure out how this works. There is a, a privilege escalation vulnerability built into there uh, that he builds upon as well. Um, but that's, to answer your question, Doug, that's a similar model of to, to how there it works. I agree. So just wanted to b- get that out there. And there's lots of um, companies and organizations that could help you with that, right. and that's not a 100% <laughs> guarantee. Sometimes people go to certain other organizations that handle exploits, and their mileage varies. Some people are like, yeah, I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. Yep. That's, uh, you know, no one's going to fix that bug, or whatever the case is, right? They look at it and say it's not severe enough, or we're not interested in helping you with that particular organization for whatever the reason. But a lot of times you do get success and they yeah. do and they do help people. I think companies are getting better set up for that kind of thing too. Yeah, I mean, that's they, it know. was really bad when we f- even when we first started the show. Yeah, just 14 t- years
1: ago it was really bad yeah, cuz they had really no bad. idea what to do. There was nobody there that knew what to do with it. And they're going to refer you to
0: legal or something and they're going to well, say Most of them even know who to email. And forget it even earlier than 15 years. Yeah. It fell on deaf ears. Like it, people didn't even like in the days of the Loft. They were it was like, it was like people were like what a, a vul- what's of a security word? vulnerability? I don't know what you're talking about, right? And they really paved the way. Loft was one of the groups early on. I think that helped raise awareness about how to handle reports of bugs, security vulnerabilities in your, so, in your own product, yeah, totally. and it's still evolving today. So I'm just I, I was I'm just was yammering thinking about this and. It's my job. I get paid um, to yammer. So we'll let Lee yammer. Go ahead. I yammer what I, I yammer. I passed the yammering torch. So I,
4: was, to Lee. I was thinking about these video conferencing systems that people have, or there's other you know, uh, office-type equipment like that that are, that are expensive, and you get it in a small business, and it's not supported. There's no patch. How likely are they to fork over another $5,000 for a brand-new device or just let it rip and say, well, nobody cares about me. I'll just hope they don't hack me.
0: Yeah, I, I, with this particular technology, Lee, it's da- <clears throat> dangerous because, in my experience, and I don't know what it's like today, but in my experience, largely, these were the devices we're either putting outside the firewall or opening up all kinds of ports yeah. to because, in like enterprise <clears throat> level or professional level, which is what we we're talking <clears throat> about for the for this show actually last week, yeah. these devices make direct connections to each other. Yep. which is why, and Lee right. brings up a great point, I think they're exposed to the internet because in order to have a 4K quality uh, call between Doug and I on either side of the world, I can't be going through multiple firewalls, proxies, routers, caching servers, right. like even Zoom that we're using tonight in Skype, I believe we're pretty similar in the fact that you connect up to their servers, their servers broker their connection so you don't have to open up ports between right. them. But once you get into... I can't remember the name of the company. There was, we, we had it at Brown. You mean like Polycom? Yes, or one thank of the, you, the Polycom. Issues. See, oh. Lee can also read minds among his other many talents. Uh, Polycom gear, for example, right, needs to make those direct connections. I actually had Polycom uh, gear that I found on a pen test. And, and that was fun because if you got people on site, what makes for a great report when you hack into any of their video systems is to have... Either yourself, if you can pull that off, or someone else stand in front of the camera and wave (laughs) while you take the screenshots that you use in the report. They're so much more impactful.
1: Well, a lot of those old systems, too. Awesome. A lot of those old security (laughs) systems were designed with two things. One was flat networks. Yep. So there was no security equipment in those networks. And two. Any jump,
0: Doug, as you well know, creates more latency, potentially.
1: And. and and also just the fact that at the time a lot of this stuff was designed and conceptualized, there was no internet. Right. I mean, so... Not even it, potentially. Every hop does add latency. It does. Whether it's how no. impactful the it is. The actual is, wire <laughs> causes... La- anytime you yeah. un- unfurl the
0: twisted oh, pairs... Oh, tell me about the physics, Doug. I'm so uh, turned on unf- right the, now. When you... <laughs> <laughs> you <laughs> talk about unfurling. When you You're unfurl those You're curls, unfurl my clothes. Now, when you know, talk. Well, every, <laughs> every
1: time you unwrap those twisted pairs, you immediately introduce latency into your network. Oh, that's interesting. It's the unraveling of the twisted pairs. I that, mean, just the fact that you unravel
0: it to put it into the RJ45 yes. creates latency right there. You know, that makes sense because the cable that we had going for one of our internet connections it was, was completely unwrapped. Well, first it was a cable. <laughs> that you're not, supposed to, you're not supposed to crimp an end on certain types of cable. Yeah. You're supposed to crimp it into a patch. Well, there was an end crimped on it. Oh, yeah, that yeah. end went into the you know, receptacle that you would either put in a patch panel or a jack. Mm-hmm. There was a cable plugged into that one. I think that cable ran up in the ceiling and plugged into another receptacle that was punched down directly into a cable that then went into an end oh, oh. <laughs> into the thing, and it would not do... <laughs> it was 5E, most of it, Maybe all of it was 5e, it wouldn't negotiate the game okay. at all. Okay. This because week on Egregious Latency Theater, <laughs> the great unraveling. <clears throat> so, but what you're saying is because we had it even unravels when it goes into a, an end. An even RG. if it's
1: done very well, you know, it's still some of it's unraveled. It's just how much of it. So, you see these really awful cables yeah. where they've unraveled like a whole bunch. That makes it worse because now you're introducing EMI and all this other kind of stuff. So, it because it's outside the shielding. Outside the show I mean, and when you unwrap, the the wraps are what what yeah. cancels out the EMI.
2: I so, think I'm right, experiencing right. latency because this segment's unraveling. Personally, <laughs> this is interesting, Jeff. It's no, interesting the, 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 to you, maybe, but it's ancient history to perhaps well, it's others.
0: Usually, stuff that's interesting to me interests at least one <laughs> other listener of this show.
2: Yeah, Doug. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, well, the opinion from the nursing home has been
2: heard. So. <laughs> get off the latency. Here, kids, get off
1: my unraveled porch. And all of you, 10 minutes till lights out. These kids and their unraveled networks. <laughs>
4: 720. I'll
3: tell you what.
4: Back in my day, we yeah. didn't worry about the velocity factor and the, and the latency on the wire. We just worried that it worked.
0: We yeah. had one kilobit and we liked it. That message that you attached to overkill. the swallow was, wait, was that an African swallow or a
2: European swallow? It had, to be, it had to be African because of the weight of the coconut. It doesn't matter
1: when
0: he grips it. <laughs> and it had to be distributed between two Africans. That's right. Oh, boy. All right. Let's find a story fast. Are you saying coconuts are migratory? Uh,
2: uh, let's chat talk about us. the National Museum of Computing let's do that. that's a cool article have you been there i have Jeff, have you guys been i there? have not but uh, i actually had some uh, cousins visiting this past weekend that are from england and we were talking about uh, you know planning a trip for my wife and i to go over to england probably next summer 2020 and uh bletchley park is top of the uh, of the yeah. list of things to do once i get over there absolutely
1: absolutely you should definitely check it it's really cool it's really cool i have all the the
0: original bombs and all that stuff bletchley yeah. park uh refresh my memory that's where touring was mm-hmm. right yeah in the in in
4: england britain yeah to break great
0: britain, england, britain england,
4: even
0: great britain even um that's really cool so that's where the national oh so it's bletchley parks national museum of computing is exhibiting yep. uh, the uh, decrypted, essentially messages that was broken by the Colossus machines. Yeah, they found out all the tra- it all the was that was those were Turing's yeah. uh, the machines well, he that was he working built, on right stuff. Yeah. yeah,
1: and all the German messages said uh, "Schick mehr beer. translated to <laughs> that, that means "Send more beer." If you didn't
0: <laughs> thanks for that, Doug. You're so multilingual. <laughs> Uh, well, it, it's it interesting
2: is, from a cryptologic perspective yes, to,
0: yeah. to geek out from it.
2: but you know the 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 systems that they were breaking were assumed to be unbreakable because yeah. of the compute, you know, well, there wasn't such a thing as computing power back then. It was assuming people with paper and pencils and slide rules were trying to do all these calculations that it was just impossible effectively. You know one of the stories I like to tell, uh, when I give talks every once in a while is when I first started at the National Security Agency back in the mid 80s, uh, I'll, I'll usually put up a slide showing the Enigma machine, which is obviously one of the machines that um, the Colossus was breaking. You know, that's what Turing was all about. But uh, when I first started working at the NSA in 1986, it was still classified that the, the Enigma machine had been broken. Wow. And, was, uh, and that's because it was still being used. Wow. And it was, br- it was broken back in the 30s. And it wasn't revealed to have been broken until like 88 or 89. So just wrap your head around mm. the type of security and privacy that went into protecting that kind of a secret that allied powers had broken a system that was effectively used for about 50 years. Wow.
0: wow. Uh, uh, and one of the things that, that – helped break the code was the fact that they said Heil Hitler yeah. in every message, right? That so was you had of, some was plain text and some cipher text, right? Yeah,
1: once they knew that, that every single order mm-hmm. ended with Heil Hitler, it really gave me a uh, huge clue. It
2: was actually at the beginning. Cipher it's cipher well, wherever it, it was. It was was it the
0: beginning, thing. Jeff? Yeah.
2: It was the beginning. It was known plain text, so they had mm-hmm. multiple messages with, they knew what the first couple characters or words, uh, you know, decrypted to, and that helped them cut down the uh, it was a lot easier to try one. Does it match all the others? Rather than try one, all the you know brute force combinations. So it, it it's a it's a cryptographic technique um, that has to do with known known underlying plaintext. It so basically, takes the brute force whatever the number was it was gazillions uh, down to something that was workable. They they were actually doing it by hand and they could do it in several days uh, uh, and then the which was usually do. which was usually you know sometimes there were messages like let's go bomb this city or something yeah. like that so but the you know the colossus machine sped up the mm-hmm. the process and to the point where they were you know it, it, it was useful they could get the information right. out and actually respond to because
0: the key would be the key was rotated uh, yeah, it changed every day. It was yeah, it was, ve- yeah, yep. and it was very uh, dramatically portrayed in the movie, which I thought was a great movie, The Imitation Game, oh, which yeah. is really funny because like friends and family will just be talking about movies they they saw and they're like, oh yeah, we saw this one, Paul. You uh, what was that movie, Paul, with the the computer guy? But you know the like invent I'm like uh, the Imitation Game, Alan Turing. They're like, <laughs> yeah, how did you know that? I'm like, cause it's Alan <laughs> Turing. Like that's. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Get yeah.
1: old
4: Alan Turing. That's so the two 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 other things. If you don't want to run all the way to the UK, if you can get to the Cryptographic Museum at, at Fort Meade, yes. there's yeah, that's a, a lot of cool stuff, including a bomb and Turing machines and oh my goodness. That's a it's cool awesome. One
2: uh technically it's the Cryptologic Museum. And uh thank you for if that. You're, if you're coming there let me know and I'd I'd be happy to join you because the things that I used to work on are actually in the museum.
0: Now how how far oh, wow. is that from
2: Richmond Virginia? Mm. Uh, probably about three hours. Yeah. Okay, so a long way, traffic so notwithstanding. I'm well, trying to, I mean, co- I'm trying to like-
0: convince my oldest son to do some traveling with me because it falls around his birthday. But it's, not, it's <laughs> not far from
1: it's not far from Baltimore. So if you want to go no, to Fort Meade, yeah. you just
0: fly from here to Baltimore.
1: It takes an hour, and then you can you can visit Jeff. You can yep, go to the Gallery me. of Ancient Things and 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 see the stuff there. Or and, just wait until that three letter government agency
2: picks us up and takes us there. Yeah.
1: On the government it's actually time. on
2: the grounds of the three-letter agency mm. uh, and and you have to be careful which way you make the turns so you don't actually accidentally drive you know to the guard posts but People if you do be, be sure and running. ask
1: them in Russian or Farsi you know where the museum <laughs> is it, it's always helpful to have a really really interesting experience
4: I mean well while well, pointing your streaming video camera exactly exercise. that'll really <laughs> so I was there in 2014 <laughs> in an event set up by Ed Scotus, and Ed was yes. like a kid in a candy store because he loved... He has crypto. an Enigma machine. Yes, he, he does. does. He does, yes. Oh, my God. And he's got a really good presentation that explains the weaknesses of the Enigma. He and, he and Josh Wright did called Keep Your Brain Juice Off My Enigma Machine. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> it's a good story. That's
0: really awesome. Well, I was there
2: just about... I was there right before ShmooCon, so whatever that was, three, four weeks ago. Uh, Happy to give tours. I know know a couple of the uh, docents that volunteer their time there. It's actually just uh, celebrated either the 20th or 25th anniversary. I think it's 25th anniversary. And they're actually building a new center. What's interesting is... Uh, it, well, I'm geeking out a little bit, but the uh, the Cryptologic Museum is housed in what used to be a motel. And the motel sat right outside of the National Security Agency for many, many years and was simply a motel. And at some point, I think before I started there, uh, NSA actually bought it. And they, they kept running it as a motel for many years for all the visitors that would come. And uh, at some point, they stopped doing that. Uh, but they've they've kept it in the family, so to speak. And so it was the, the site of the Cryptologic Museum for many years. But they've... Uh, they are under construction. They're building a, a brand new visitor center museum. It's going to be bigger and better than ever before. I'm not sure when they're expecting to uh, have it open, but it's actively under construction. So probably in the next year or two, it should be opened up and it, it, even more reason to come visit.
0: It's a cool place to go. Yep. Um, is this, this next article on what do successful pen testing attacks have in common? Um, I'm somewhat befuddled <laughs> by this report. <coughs> uh, they say it was based on the statistics were based on the results of thirty three pen test projects. To me, that's not first of all, a big enough sample size uh, to glean any meaningful it's just data. like somebody's dissertation or something. Uh, and then they say attempts to breach the network perimeter and obtain land uh, resource access to land resources were successful. In 92% of the external pen tests, I don't know how many of those 33 were external versus internal, half of the companies were able to breach network perimeter in one step. And the number one method was use of insecure data transfer protocols, which puzzles me.
1: Well, they don't it's define what a breach means. Does that mean they were able to ping something or I, what? Is, is it? But usually it's
0: phishing, right? Because yeah. well, then they, they list dictionary passwords, which... Okay. I wouldn't call insecure data transfer protocols phishing, though. No, it's not. That's what I'm saying. Like, but it could be like, a ping.
2: Telnet. I I, I, I see. <laughs> I'm to... struggling to find who wrote the article or who you know what what is the source of the data.
1: I don't think anyone's it's claiming It's a it. pen test company. Is it from this ebook
0: or that? Yeah, at the bottom.
2: Oh, there it is. Uh, yeah, I, found I, the just, name. I, I found the You name know of a, the person.
0: A word of caution: make sure you got a, a big enough sample size to make c- claims and, and cite percentages. And I, I, you know, I don't disagree that insecure data transfer protocols aren't, you know, are a problem. Uh, I just, I don't, I don't know. Anyway, uh, they say brute force attacks. I mean, essentially, credentials on the internal network is what they're saying. That I buy. Uh, failure to install updates. Vulnerabilities to social engineering. So in the internal, they list specially crafted emails, but they don't rank them in vulnerable Wi-Fi networks. Very strange. What type of organization? I mean, if it was only 33 pen tests, uh, the, it's just not a big I enough. I think it's a dangerous generalization. It is.
1: Yeah, I mean, 33 is not a, is not a large number, despite the law of large numbers saying mm-hmm. 30 is sufficient. But, I mean, that's, that's a misnomer well at the end of the
2: day at the end of the day the article links to the report which is a basically a white paper for this company i don't even bother wanting to name them
1: Uh, so
2: this is a marketing
0: thing let's move on
1: yeah it's a white paper marketing document written by the company
0: okay good that we pointed it out um so uh, what else we got uh jeff or lee your stories
2: well, I had a couple stories, and I, I I didn't put up more, but you actually grabbed one. Apparently, this is the time of year where lots of statistical reports come out. I think part of it's probably you know, because it's the beginning of the year, and part of it, I think, frankly, is the, the beginning of the buildup to RSA week. Um, I had cited one that had to do with uh, – the title was fewer breaches in 2018, but more sensitive data was spilled. You know, so if you go to the article, there's a chart where you know the number of breaches reported went way down, but the number of compromised records and, and data is way up. Um, a second one that I had had to do with uh, sort of tangentially, but I thought was interesting was apparently I think it's the Health and Her- Human Services. They have a website where they post healthcare organizations that are breached and they call it their wall of shame. <laughs> so that was interesting. Not you had good. one about the, the GDPR has already recorded, um, 59,000 59, breaches, uh, which was interesting. I went to that article, um, and, uh, you know, they had a table in you know, by country and far and away. Number one was the Netherlands. And I happened to be uh, talking on Twitter, dm earlier to chris kubeka uh at sec evangelism who we interviewed i don't know a year and a half or two ago she lives in amsterdam so she's in the netherlands i'm like what's up you know netherlands is like the worst offender by far she had an interesting explanation and she's actually thinking about writing a blog article uh which we can put up here if she uh yeah, you know, if she writes it in the next week or so. But basically, the Netherlands—they were—they were some of the people that started writing the initial documents that became GDPR, the initial standards. But somehow they got behind in, in the curve, in in actually implementing the things that they were recommending.
0: Any other stories that look interesting, gentlemen?
2: Well, doubling back on it though, what do you, uh, I'm sorry, Lee. I'm just interested in in hearing people's impressions on the idea that you post a wall of shame uh, of organizations that have suffered a breach. They also – I forget whether it was this article because I looked at many of them. They also are keeping track of fines that they levy against companies. Uh, And they were sort of advertising it as you know this is how much we've recovered or this is how much I don't know where where the money goes. Yeah, that's a good Um, question, Jeff. Where
0: does the money go?
2: But what do you think about uh, you know a wall of shame for healthcare organizations that are being breached or any type of organization for that matter? I
0: don't know. I mean, that's always a double-edged sword. You you hate to do the shaming game in any situation, but sometimes the shaming game actually works pretty good. However, a public shaming game like this could give attackers an indication of which organizations to go pick on. Uh, right. Not that, I don't know. I mean, I guess they could figure that out on their own. It would take a lot more work versus I, us right. publishing a list.
4: So. Right. right. I mean, I was, I think, and I agree with you on double-edged sword. On the one hand, you get this list of organizations and find and, and say, look, this shit's real. You really will have consequences for failing to meet GDPR. But what about the reputation of those companies? I mean, mm. whether they fix it or not, they're on this list that they were breached, and uh, that could that could have some long term consequences.
3: For but them, if but-
1: it's public information anyway, it's just a consolidation of stuff that's already out there. So if the information has been released already, just in a different form, I don't really have a big problem with it. If it's something where you're, you know, again, you're you're telling people before. That, but if it's just government reports and somebody went through and consolidated them all and said, here's all the offenders, I mean, that's just like they do for, like, the worst airline in the world or whatever, and they say, here's the number of incidents right. or complaints, and they somebody compiles it all together and says, oh, this one was ranked number one or whatever. Yeah, and is that really, in the GDPR case, indicative of the security posture? Maybe, Could but it's be. not conclusive evidence. No, it's not. So it, it's, you know, I mean, I don't know that it's a huge issue for those companies if it's already public information. Now, if it's private information, I, that's another whole matter. I think then you've mm-hmm. got legal yeah. people calling you, going, "You know, why did you just put my company up as a target?" Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, you could still say that, but he, I think the defense is, "Yeah, mm-hmm. but it was on this government list. I just took what was on the government site and published it over here." Yeah. So now it's just news, mm-hmm.
4: right? So then the question is, why? What's the What's the <laughs> end game by publishing?
1: To
2: get people to yeah. read the
1: read the newspaper.
2: Well, I think they're trying to find ways to motivate companies to to do something different, to actually change things.
0: I don't know. I think some I, I of it could be like, oh, look, we're going to boycott those companies on the list, which in my mind largely doesn't work. No.
1: I mean, if you need something, the company provides you. Just use it. You're anyway. going to use it anyway, right? Right. I mean, might, uh, like, oh. I mean, if there's five companies selling the same product at the same price, I might go. Well, that one's better than this one because they're more secure. But really, it's like we need these. We need these grommets, and Bob's grommets, is, you know, is the one selling them to us. And there's not four other grommet factories around, so we'll just buy them from Bob. Right. Or well, you could go to AliExpress
2: and
0: get them from China. Well, I guess, yeah, suppose
2: <laughs> What's interesting in in the in the PCI world of breaches um, you know it, it, it's been generally true since the beginning. I don't think it's changed a whole lot but uh, you know c- customers that I dealt with that either had gone through a breach or you know they're fearful of the breach um, they always had the attitude you know within whatever, type of industry they were in you know if they were a supermarket or if they were a hotel chain or if they were a gas station or you know whatever department store they always started by saying you know well you go around to a bunch of different customers what is everybody else doing that are like us they always wanted to not do any more or any less than the competition uh and that was what they considered due diligence but but another aspect of it is uh, since i did deal with uh, uh, some companies in the mid 2000s that suffered you know significant major breaches that we all that we all know about um uh, they never really suffered you know from the perspective of lost uh, you know consumer confidence and and you know company value i mean that's always Part of the perception is, you know, we don't want, you know, we don't want to be associated with a breach. It'll be bad for our image and, and ultimately our bottom line. But historically, at least companies in the retail world, in the PCI world, uh, you know, with a couple exceptions, but uh, from a merchant perspective, most companies have not suffered long-term effects in terms of, of recovering from a breach. I don't know if that can be said for the healthcare world. Uh, you know, we, somebody should go visit Anthem or look up Anthem and see how they're doing. It was interesting. One of the articles I was looking at that was healthcare related, they were short of, sort of showing the number of breaches reported by year. And I'm looking at one table and, and everything was kind of, You know, steady. And then 2015, there was this huge spike and I'm like, oh, that had to be Anthem, which it was. Um, But in terms of and I asked the question, which I think is an interesting question, uh, is there a table somewhere that shows the number of breaches that happen in an industry, and this in particular one was healthcare versus the ones that make it to uh, you know they're wor- newsworthy, quote unquote, that that get media attention.
0: Actually, my dining amp- room table at home has the like, complete chart on there, Jeff. And there's lots really? of little, there's lots of strings <laughs> attached to different pins that yeah. are pointing all over <laughs> the place. Right well,
1: no, I mean
2: because right. I mean in the in the in the piece again in the PCI world we hear about the big breaches where millions and millions of cards are are stolen but if you if you read some of the reporting you know Krebs is is really good about you know the the fraudsters and the and the bad guys they're stealing cards all the time but they do it one Z2 Z few hundred here a few hundred there and and lots of, uh, of smaller companies are getting knocked over all the time. But those aren't newsworthy, so we don't know about it, and so we don't act upon it. Which makes you know. Which makes me wonder out loud if something like a wall of shame is something that's um, you know. Assuming that the purpose is for better security, ultimately, is it really effective? Does it does it do any good?
1: Well, and I, I'll inject one of the other stories about nine one one. Uh, there was a story about 911 and denial of service and how many of these things get targeted. Sometimes it it might be important that you know, you know where you stand It's like is 911 going to be down when I call it and uh you know I mean the recommendation in that article was about all these ways to solve this problem for 911 services but that's a very underfunded kind of thing that exists in most places and it, you know everybody wants it but nobody wants to pay for it and you know, it, 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 when you start telling them, oh, yeah, build a huge security organization to protect 911, it's like, well, we want to do that, but we may not have the budget to go out and, and, and set that up. And, and it might be nice to know that our 911. Until it gets hacked, and then they may well, yeah, magically, and if you,
0: the budget makes it. If you
1: know the, the state of whatever is, is got a you know, we're ranked 50th in the most likely targets. So that wall of shame may get some politicians to go, maybe we should throw some money down here and get this straightened out. Or we could build a teapot museum. Hmm.
4: There really is one of those.
0: <laughs> yeah. It was an earmark. Oh <laughs> Wow. Wow. The imagination never ceases I didn't
1: make mainstream. that up. It's real. It's a famous earmark case in D C. they they, they tacked this whole teapot museum thing onto the back of a bill and you know, and they got all these millions of dollars to build a teapot museum somewhere. Do they serve tea there? Or I, have, just, I don't think they do anything. Have there. you they been just, there, Doug? <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I missed that one when I was touring Mississippi or wherever the thing is. It's like
0: <laughs> you were touring in Mississippi. No, I wasn't touring in Mississippi. Now this is I'm, where the
1: show really goes off the rails, I'm, Jeff. I'm not allowed in Mississippi.
0: So yeah, that's a story for another time. Yeah, there is a story there. So I, I, had, I had a question. From one of mine. Go ahead, they
4: one of the stories that I found, and I, I don't like the FUD flavor to it, but they use the term a vapor worm as a new form of fileless malware. And I was trying to figure out whether that was a thing or was it just baloney. I mean, I thought it was really cool that the fileless malware is self-propagating, embeds itself as a registry tree, creates another registry tree that executes it and does stuff. I thought that stuff's pretty cool but i just don't know about this term vaporworm and i was wondering if any of you guys had heard of it it seemed odd
0: uh, it's very odd to me i think it's it's just it's just one of those
1: file, things it's, it's one of those things malware. where yeah but it's one of those things where it assembles in memory out of pieces that come from other components so at least that's how i heard the term used before was was that it was it it did you know you didn't have to download a file or anything like that it just came in on all these other uh, payloads And then it assembles itself in memory, and that way it can execute, and then it can actually disappear, and you don't know what happened to it, which is why they were calling it vapor worms. Mm -hmm.
2: That sounds vaguely familiar, like attacks we used to craft years ago where you would divide up the payload over multiple packets. But it, it just sounds vaguely familiar. My question is, and it's sort of a, a joke, but I'm sort of seriously asking the question Does fileless malware, is that a, a unique method of attacking serverless applications? No, oh, hi. You
1: sound if like a server working. rack falls in the forest <laughs> will
0: Paul be there to catch it film
2: at
3: 11
0: <laughs> it's a new service that we're offering Doug I, I go to your data center and when the, da- when the rack falls I, I'm there to catch it and in, if a server falls I can catch it with my other hand after that yeah. After that it's a denial of service attack and everything just crashed <laughs> but I can catch one rack and one server, okay? And a yeah. chainsaw. That's my record. That's and and record. a chainsaw
1: and then he juggles them and then it, it, it really I haven't pays tried
0: up. anything more than that. Maybe next week on Paul Security After Week 2 right? there's you got to try 3. It's true. Yeah, this is it's true. true.
1: You know, catch one on your on your
0: your ankle and I, Yeah, I can I have a foot a head. Yeah, do we? Yeah, we can. Then, we then, can. Then, I, can then, I can up my game. I can up my game. it's all I'm saying. I'm telling it, you. I mean, I've seen it. Like the most things I ever caught falling in a data center was two. It was a rack and a server. Yeah, I mean, which is two more than I ever caught. I mean, yeah. So, but well, I can totally. I'm going for the Guinness. Get Guinness Book of World Records here. Damn it. I'm getting them on the phone as we speak. <laughs> <Yeah>. Boys, <laughs> we you gotta get go, down here. Throw some shit around it in the server. He's going, room. He's going for the record. Watch get down here fast. Watch me catch <laughs> it's it. It's not gonna last. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs>
3: wow.
0: Well, now, do we officially tell the story of me in the server room
2: catching I
1: don't stuff think on so, air? So yeah, I, everybody I else I, is
0: going, I, "What the hell?" I yes. thought you talked
2: you you talked about it last week. I though. did
0: talk about it last week. Yeah. It's still burned in my. It's very. I'm it's burned. Scarred, in all our I'm scarred for life from that yeah. experience. To be on. And he was wearing yeah. a house dress when he did it. It was yeah. like. It's like doesn't everyone when you're working in the data s- s- center? Yeah, I do.
1: It keeps keeps. Keeps yes. everything nice and cool. <laughs> Naked
0: with an apron. Yeah, Actually, I did data
2: centers, it's, it's it's very cold. Um, Ooh, a, a story. Just yeah, popped that's what up. they always <laughs> say. <laughs> a story just popped up on my LinkedIn page that's not in the wiki, but it sounds interesting. Does probably HIPAA
0: more interesting than what we're talking about right now, Jeff. Yeah. So uh, I think
2: with it will it. be. Does HIPAA <laughs> apply to medical marijuana? Ooh.
0: Wait, wh- wouldn't it? I mean, no, wait, a prescription. No, no. Hold on. HIPAA is a is my question to that question, is HIPAA a federal regulation? Oh, it is. Yes, I would say it's a federal regulation. I just plain devil's advocate here. If anyone (laughs) decide, I if it's illegal federally. Yeah, then so marijuana your right question, medical marijuana, marijuana is, is illegal because, federally. Is, I well, mean your question right is
2: because marijuana is illegal at the federal level. And, right. And it's only at the state level that it's legal. So are our, our organizations that are funded and allowed to to distribute uh, marijuana at the state level, are they subject to a federal regulation? That's an interesting that's question.
0: good question. Yeah. That's a very good question.
3: Mm-hmm. I, I, had will some add, other, you know, I will you add get,
0: this link to the to the wiki. We need to get an attorney on the show. One of the things that I ask uh, Connie in the interview that's coming up—it's a pre-recorded interview. Um, yeah, we need a, a Sean Tuma or someone. Uh,
1: I've I've got one. I can get one.
0: I know. I know. Some <laughs> so my more. other. So uh, Jeff brings up that we brought up. I thought a great question about HIPAA regulations. The other question I had was, let's say. Doug is the evil hacker. Doug breaks into some kind of system or whatever and gets a huge uh, credential dump, right? Clear text or whatever. Doug's got a whole bunch of credentials that he illegally obtained. Doug maybe posts that. Let's go with this scenario. Doug posts that to a forum that we're in uh, or posts a, a snippet of it or whatever, right? I'm in that forum. I obtain those credentials, um, or maybe I buy them from Doug, and then maybe I sell them to someone else or give them to someone else. Who is in violation of which laws? I mean, Doug most likely clearly violated the CFAA when you obtained those credentials. Let's just say that is a could be a very clear vi- could be a very clear violation, but. Does Doug distributing them publicly, me obtaining them publicly, whether he sells them to me or I get them publicly, well, am I violating a law? And then if I then give them or sell them to someone else, I haven't, conceivably, let's say, I haven't violated the oh CFA yes, for have. this. Have I, but you have. if you posted them publicly? No, I,
1: I'm, I'm not an attorney, but listen, if you have illegal materials and you say, I obtained these illegal materials completely legally they're still illegal materials. I mean, I mean if if we go to some island where they sell cocaine legally and I sell you stolen cocaine and you say, "Well, I didn't steal it. I bought yeah, it legally." That's, that's different G- cocaine is definition, illegal by substance. You can't legally obtain cocaine. Can't legally
0: obtain something. Cocaine is schedule 2. Well, per, is this schedule Hold people. on, is cocaine schedule 1 or schedule 2? I don't know. I th- I want to say it's schedule 2. It is cuz marijuana is schedule 1. Cocaine, I believe is listeners will correct me cocaine schedule too in any case it is on the list of scheduled drugs but that are I illegal think if you are in therefore it's uh, i'm not talking about that past credentials are not like cocaine i mean maybe to some people you credentials have, are like you cocaine. Have most people credentials are not like you've cocaine.
1: acquired somebody's personal information and you, you you i don't care if you got it from me publicly you still acquired people's personal information that you obviously knew was illegal I mean, yeah, but if I
0: find someone's cell phone on the ground and I, I pick it up, am I now a criminal but automatically? But the cell
1: phone isn't illegal,
0: but it's got your, per- it's your personal information. Thank you, Johnny. He's confirmed that cocaine is a schedule, too. Oh, well, now we know Do that. It. See, now we, we can play trivia. Get it out. Let's yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's- <laughs> We're ready to party. <laughs> is, is the no, fact that, that
1: anyone no, no, no. knows it's that... It's Schedule 2. Paul said it was okay. No. <laughs> is, Schedule 2 is, is the still fact that
2: illegal. Is oh, that man. Two. is that privacy information that's subject to
0: HIPAA? That is... is why, well, would, the why, would the point why would you Jeff know Jeff is that? making the point that I'm trying yeah. to make, that your phone has, in this example, okay. personal information. Well, it it is be. not cocaine. Your phone is not illegal. The information that's on it is I mean, not... I,
1: I do think it's a very valid conceivably question. I think it is a very valid question.
0: But what if it's like enemy of the state where I end up with some electronic. Device that does have something on it that I don't
1: know anyway. Well, I I will. I mean, I asked that question once to John Mellon, the great -great grandfather of forensics. And I, you know, I said, What if I have a hard drive that's got child pornography on it and I'm driving around with it? And he's like, Yeah, he's like, If you got if you acquire a brick of cocaine and put it in the trunk of your car and drive around with it, it's illegal, Mm -hmm. you're gonna go to jail. So, right, but but this is so much those two
0: things are illegal. No, I know. My username and password is not an illegal substance, or I don't know. I think that would. it would you you'd This have is to, what I'm saying. We've now got two really good, I think, issues. to yeah. uh there's probably a third one if I thought uh, hard enough well, about it. It came the, up in the past couple of weeks that I would like to.
1: We should have a special show called Five Questions for the Attorney and get. We should get two yes. attorneys
0: on here and let the two attorneys. So we got it two out of the five,
1: and
2: I mean,
0: it's. It yeah. just came up based on recent news and stuff. I think it'd be a great show. I would. I would like to watch that. Yeah. that would be an awesome not, topic. Not based on recent purchases. No, not based on <laughs> No, definitely not. <laughs> Fentanyl is, is schedule two, yes, okay. but you should go re- re- it's fa- I think it's a fascinating they
1: really expect read. people that are like wasted to understand this stuff.
0: Well no way I it's mean still it's schedule one or schedule two, man. It's still illegal, I it's all illegal. Slightly different penalties. Is it? Okay. I believe so. Not not in Mississippi. Maybe I well I guess does the that's another question does uh, how much weight does the state carry in there? I guess so. They determine whether it's a felony or whether it's a misdemeanor yeah. or whether it's a fine. I right? Mean, it's so very
1: complex. I mean, I think the whole thing about illegal information is really complicated, and it would right. be really this could get down to the state On issue because like if you watch, one
0: weekly, yeah. Well, if you wa- so in terms of how you would prosecute this in the United States, right? Uh, in terms of having personal information, maybe I've got Rhode Island personal information and I live in some other state. When it comes on the schedules, if you watched like Live PD, right? In Texas, marijuana, highly illegal felony. You want to right? jail, boy. Rhode Island, $200 fine under a certain amount. And you see both of those situations yeah. play out. So clearly the federal government has classified that. They put laws down, Jeff, like HIPAA, Right, But the states also have, well, states' rights have been an issue since the beginning, basically. I, uh, <laughs> I think it would be a really tough case because I think there would be a lot of
1: attorneys struggling with what it even means. There would be a lot of courts. Oh, the third thing, I
0: remember the third thing for our attorney friends, is in Japan. And I don't, did we cover oh this God, last anything week? anything starts out in Japan. <laughs> in Japan, they are going to scan... Their inter- their publicly accessible internet IP addresses in the country of Japan. They are going talked to about this last week. We did talk about this last week, yeah, yeah. and so the question is: What are the laws in Japan to say I can try a default password on your router? I can f- figure out your router's there. I can connect to your router. I can test some credentials on it. To me, those are three different things. What are the laws in Japan versus the laws in? The US. Also the other interesting thing that I was speculating about was what if I'm a US company and I've got I am doing business in Japan and I have uh, a building and a presence in Japan and now you're scanning my stuff, but it's owned by a US corporation. Oh, uh, no, let that let you know, that I let, mean this I'm stuff's here. been issues for a long time. I right? Mean, it's, so it's, there's three things three things that I want to discuss I mean, you know, it, with an attorney.
1: That's like talking about did somebody look at a child pornography that was on a server in Denmark uh, that you know they were looking at it in Mexico via a VPN that had an endpoint in California, and I mean that stuff gets so complicated yes. that yeah, it'll be like a hundred years of legal fees before anybody ever gets a precedent on it. And
2: no, but it, but in all seriousness, though, I, I think the analogy is closer to sort of traditional case law. Uh, which most lawyers are more comfortable with. And, and it, it it has to do with questions like, um, if you shoot somebody with the intent to kill them, but they happen to be already dead. Is it, is it murder attempted murder or whatever? No, I'm I'm serious. No, I, I, you're yeah, right. I, I, it's just like, I was like yeah, things. And, and and another example, you know, that's closer to trying to to log in or trying to use credentials would be, you know, if you come up to a house or a residence and the door was was wide open or there is no door and you walk in, are you? guilty of trespassing, or have you violated a law by walking through an open door or not? And and, and that's mm. the type of case law yeah. that's been
1: no, I tried I over centuries
2: right where where you know, there's there is case law conclusions with a lot of caveats applied. I think those are the, sort of the. the I,
4: I agree, and I think that gets down. that
2: starts
1: to drill down into intent and all these other kind of things about like did sure. Paul intent. did Paul get this because it was just up on the screen? He he went to a website and it said, "Here's a bunch of." Did
0: I get password. it because I saw my credentials or my company's credentials or a company that right. I'm consulting for? I saw their credentials, therefore. <clears throat> I wanted to obtain it so that I could take corrective action.
1: Versus did he contact me and say, can you steal these credentials from me? I mean, there's a whole lot of like, sure. granularity great, in great there, point. which is very different. I yep. mean, yeah, because I mean, you could easily just say, I was looking to see if I was on this list. Right. So that's hey, why I have this.
2: Remind, reminds me of a funny story, and it wasn't funny at the time, but uh, someone that I am, that I... Uh, Formerly acquainted with or in uh, worked with uh, that will remain extremely anonymous. Is this at that hotel outside the NSA, Jeff? <laughs> it pi- quite possibly could be. Uh, they, they were working on a forensic case one time, uh, and they were actually working for their – the customer was the FBI. And uh, they were trying to you know find an attacker, and, and they were doing a bunch of uh, – investigation. And one of the things that they discovered was an FTP server, uh, which used to be called a wares server. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that terminology, but, uh, you know, basically uh, a server that was found that was open and anonymous where hacking tools and scripts and things could be uploaded that could then be downloaded against targets. Uh, My friend found this FTP server and found credentials in some logs that Actually, I think he found the credentials first and went to this web, this FTP server, used the credentials that he had found and was able to log on and then was looking around at, at, at what was there to see if he could find any more evidence to, to hunt down the perpetrator. Lo and behold, some other section of the FBI was aware of this server and was monitoring it, saw mm-hmm. my friend log on. And and tracked them down. So my friend woke up early one morning to a knock on the door, you know, similar to what's his name in in the news last week, and and basically had an F- FBI team, you know, pour into his house, confiscate all of his computers oh, and equipment. I, I, know. You know, I won't say staying, it, but I know who you're talking about. <laughs> uh, I don't think you do, uh. but but I'm sure it's happened more than once. Maybe it's happened but, more than yeah. once. But the uh, but you know the irony was it was the FBI that caught him and they thought they'd caught the bad guy right. because they had they had they'd caught this guy using the credentials yep. to log on and traced back his IP address and and found him and thought they had caught the bad you know, what's guy. what's interesting,
0: Jeff, is but, I, I was just telling the story earlier. I I had done that and then sent the credentials to law enforcement, who then did that. And it turns out the case and someone was asking about this in the YouTube channel. I might have told the story last week. And we're talking about the case I did in 2002 where it led to the arrest of 14 uh, people in Italy. And I could have sworn that I remembered the uh, person who was working for the Italian police in the forensics unit that I worked with. And we got Dario Forte from DF Labs on an interview for PSW, and he said that he used to work in their uh, Italian forensics division in 2002 I said, you know, I did a case in 2002 where I actually like talked to someone. (laughs) I'm like, it could have been you. He's like, yeah, it could have been, could have been. So since someone was asking about it on Monday when I came into work, they were like, and I think it was like, well, maybe they didn't believe me or just wanted more information or a combination of both. I dug up my presentation from 2002 that I did at MIT Security Camp. And then I Google searched for the title of the article because my link was wrong and found the article that said... You know, forensics investigators—you uh, know—did an investigation led to the arrest of 14 hackers, and Dario Fortes quoted in the article. Wow! Yeah, like, <laughs> it, holy shit! <laughs> that talk about going full circle. Wow, that was pre- and, uh, but I—the point of that story uh, in this respect, Jeff, was I did the same thing. I found the FTP right. credentials. I logged in the FTP server. I was like, wow, there's a whole lot more tools on here that do really bad things. I should talk to someone yeah. and uh, you know, see if there's an investigation and at least give them what I found because I'm like, what I've got right now could probably get some people in some serious trouble because they had some seriously sloppy OPSEC. I mean, I'm well, not really my- the hero there. Most people in my shoes with a certain amount of skill, if you're a sysadmin, in other words you would have been able to do the same thing that I did. Like, it wasn't rocket science. There was a clear text file <laughs> with their FTP credentials in it. Again, it wasn't rocket science. But uh, uh, again, Jeff, could I? the same thing could have happened to me, conceivably. Right. Maybe had I not uh-huh. contacted law enforcement, it would have been the other way around. They would have contacted me uh-huh. at 5 o'clock in the morning after they broke my door down. Yeah. I, I
2: would say it's very possible that you should thank my friend if I ever have the occasion to introduce you to him, because this probably happened in 97 or 98. And, and, and hopefully they learn some lessons because sure. I mean, it, this guy is very private to this day. You know, he does not want his identity revealed in any way, shape, or form. He's, he, he works in the industry. Uh, I knew him from certain three letter agency and it was devastating to him because, you know, of the invasion of privacy. Number one, he had all of his computers, his wife's family's computers confiscated and took uh, years to get it all back. Yep. Uh, even though it, you know, it turned out very quickly that they discovered that it was one part of the FBI, you know, against another part of the FBI, and and you know, intercommunications in in government agencies is a whole other story. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> it was a big deal for him. But hopefully, there was lessons learned there so that. But you know, to, to getting back to our original point, what is the legality of finding credentials or attempting to guess credentials when you're trying to log on remotely, whether it's FTP or RDP or a website or whatever?
3: Yep.
0: Anyway, we're not lawyers. Any, we're going to yeah. go find one of our friends who are lawyers and uh, can speak uh, in a more authoritative manner on this. These yeah. to- we brought up, <clears throat> I don't remember what they were, but we'll write them down. Three topics. Mm-hmm. That we had, that I thought. Uh, so, if you are an attorney and you want to talk about those three topics, maybe you've been on the show before, maybe you haven't. Uh, you know, we'll we'll definitely, we'll play. Should Paul go to jail? Well, yeah, <laughs> we'll turn it into a game. Yeah, and we'll play. Should Paul, <laughs> should go, to Paul go to jail should Paul go to jail tonight? I look terrible or in the morning at five a.m. I don't think I look
1: good in an orange jumpsuit. Just saying, that's. Why hey, you yeah, have it. some choices in that, like the ch- the
2: assless jumpsuits <laughs> and other, other things <laughs>
1: that you can wear. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the the vision of
0: Paul going to jail makes me think we should close this segment. <laughs> yes, please do. Uh, thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone, for uh, listening and watching this episode of Paul's Security Weekly. Doug, take us out. February 7th, 2019, and that's
1: the way it is. Oh, thank wait. you, and good night. Oh, there's an interview. Don't Don't, don't you know, it Hang, Hang, Hang on. We just, we're not leaving yet. No. Just kidding. <laughs> Okay, it, that's not the way it was. It's the way it will
0: be. Connie Mastovich, uh is coming up next. Yeah, heard it here first.
4: Hi, my name is Matt DeVoe. I am the CEO and co-founder of UDA LLC. I was also the founder of FusionX, the advanced red teaming company that was acquired by Accenture in 2015. One of the things that I like about the Scythe platform is that it brings red teaming to a much larger audience. We're able to replicate the capabilities of a sophisticated attacker in a way that is very automated and scalable in the enterprise.
0: Thinks Canary makes high-fidelity honeypots that set up the minutes and requires no ongoing administration. Attackers moving silently on your network advertise their presence by tripping over them. There's a good reason Thinks Canaries are deployed and loved by some of the best security teams in the world. They're inexpensive, they're simple, and they work. For more information, go to securityweekly.com forward slash canary or direct message at sign Thinks Canary on Twitter. Domain Tools help security analysts turn threat data into threat intelligence. They take indicators from your network, including domains and IP addresses, and connect them with nearly every active domain on the internet. Those connections drive risk assessments, help profile attackers, guide online fraud investigations, and map cyber activity to attacker infrastructure. Fortune 1000 companies, global government agencies, and leading security solutions vendors use the Domain Tools platform as a critical ingredient in their threat investigations and proactive defenses. For more information, visit securityweekly.com forward slash domain tools. Welcome back, everyone, to our, well, what will be a pre recorded uh, interview for the show. Uh, quick announcement uh, as our guest uh, for this segment will be presenting uh, at InfoSec World, as well as myself and several others that you may have seen on the show. Of course, you can go to infosecworld.misty. Dot com, uh, there is a discount code. What was that discount code? See, I should have had them put it in my notes. Everybody, all of our listeners should know the discount code because we've had so much fun uh, saying all of our discount codes. OS 19 secweek Week is, of course, the discount code for Infosec World that gets you 15 percent off. The main conference or a World pass. It's going to be a lot of fun, April 1st through the third. I'd like to introduce our guest for this segment. Um, Connie, uh, now I see. I didn't ask you how to pronounce your last name. Is it M- Mastovich? Mastovich?
6: Oh, uh, you were right the first time. Mastovich.
0: Mastovich. Connie Mastovich. She works for Reclamer. Did I say that right? Reclamer. Nope. Reclamer. Reclamer. I'm just. I'm having trouble today with pronunciation. Bear with me. She's the That's senior okay. security compliance analyst. Connie, welcome to the program.
6: Thank you. Thanks for having me on.
0: Uh, and I can pronounce dark web and deep web, thankfully. <laughs> which is what Good we're going to be talking about on this segment. Um, and, kind of, you do a, a lot of research uh, in this area. Is there something in particular that kind of uh, led you to doing research on uh, the dark web or the deep web?
6: Yes. As security professionals, I think when I do presentations to clients, I refer to the dark web. This information could be sold on the dark web, so you mm-hmm. have to be careful. But I found I didn't know as much about it as I would have liked to. So I started researching it for my own edification, really learned a lot and decided I think this would be something that all security professionals would be interested in learning more about. How can we as security professionals protect ourselves, our families, our businesses, the information that we handle against the dangers of the dark web if we don't understand them completely ourselves?
0: I, I completely agree and uh I enjoy having guests such as yourselves come on the show and kind of give us an update. As you said, you know, many of us reference it but don't you know understand necessarily how everything works. And I guess the first item of somewhat confusion is the difference between the dark web and the deep web. What is, is there a difference between the two? I tend to use them interchangeably, <clears throat> probably incorrectly.
6: That is incorrect, but it's very common and again it's a misconception that has been used so frequently that it's become commonplace. the The surface web, first of all, let's start mm-hmm. at that level. The surface web is the web that we all use every day. You go Google something, you look something up, that's the surface web. The deep web is actually anything that a search engine can't find. Anything that you have doesn't have a link, that has a link, but not a search box. And the example that I used in my presentation last year was the, the site Hotwire. If you go to Hotwire, you can, there are no links. You have to put things in search boxes. That's the deep web. And that is so simplistic. It's not nefarious. It's not dark. Nothing bad goes on there. It's just the the graphic that I saw was of an iceberg, Right. And the very tip of it is the surface web. Down lower, but still above the water, is the deep web. And then underneath the water, hidden, is the dark web. So they are absolutely two different layers of the internet.
0: And it's, it's pretty easy to avoid being indexed by search engines, basically. You put some configuration right, right. on your website and, and you can yep. protect it from search engines. And, and sometimes yep. they may do that on purpose and it's not necessarily something nefarious. Absolutely. So that brings us to the dark web.
6: That brings us to the dark web, which is the layer of the iceberg that's buried down underneath the water that got the Titanic in trouble. (laughs) Um, It can't be found with an average search engine. You can't go to Google or DuckDuckGo or Bing and search something. You can search the dark web and you'll get... A lot of articles regarding the dark web, but you can't access it. The only way to actually access the dark web um, is something called Tor. And I'm sure most security professionals are familiar with it. It stands for the onion router and it's called the onion router because of the many layers that you have to go through. And it's those layers that mask the activity that goes on there and getting Tor is frighteningly easy. You can download it, um, You can ask a friend who has it to give it to you. Um, You can ask Tor, email Tor, and they'll send it to you. And once you have the Tor router, then you can access what's on the dark web. So
0: I always thought of Tor, and one of the pieces of functionality it gives you is to be able to browse the web somewhat anonymously and mask your location. But obviously there's some more functionality built into Tor, other than anonymization.
6: Yes, and the anonymization is a big part of it. And again, that's why they call it Tor the Onion Layer, because your IP address, instead of going, as we're discussing with each other now, or if you're searching something, it goes from one IP, one node to the next. In Tor, it goes through many nodes and masks each one before it gets to the final destination.
0: So, so Connie, um the we talked about the exit nodes um, and how they can eat up a lot of bandwidth, um, and that was a lot of it was used for anonymization. But there's other functionality inside of this this Tor technology.
6: Yes, there is. And in specific, when you're using Tor, you can't use a standard operating system like Firefox or Chrome. You have to use something called Tails, which is an operating system specifically tailored to work with Tor. And again, it has anonymization anonymization features of its own Mm -hmm. so it's another one of those layers
0: right 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 and then so how like uh, above uh, beyond the anonymization uh how does it work to be able to discover now you have to discover these places on the dark web how do you do that with with Tor?
6: um it's kind of it that's one of the things that i found interesting because The first time I did this presentation, I did not do demos of the dark web. And the second time I did it, the last year's one, not Mm -hmm. this year's one. I did it for another organization, and they specifically requested dark web demos. So I did them. It doesn't look dramatically different at all from a website on the regular surface web. Um, There are really no red flags. Once you get into Tails, you can search just like you can... In a in a regular surface web browser, you can just go into the search and start looking for anything from the things that are that move on the dark web. Is another thing that I found fascinating. Obviously, credentials, sex trafficking, drugs, weapons. You just go in and start searching.
0: Hmm. That's that's kind of scary, actually. It is. <laughs> and so, uh, how does? Um uh, how do the authorities handle some of this? If you could give us some updates. I know maybe two years ago we talked about how law enforcement was, you know, working to discover the criminal activity that was happening specifically on the dark web and how, you know, as soon as they take down one site, then, you know, some, someone else springs up another one and, you know, multiple smaller ones until one gets big enough to go up on the radar, then they take that one down and then there's multiple smaller ones. And it seems like a vicious cycle.
6: It absolutely is. Um, there was an organization just started by the government not too long last year, early last year, called JCode, which is the Joint Criminal Opioid Darknet Enforcement Agency. And they were specifically targeting drug activity on the dark web. But you're absolutely right. They closed down um, a big site on the dark web, which was called Silk Road. And mm-hmm. Silk Road was moving everything, again, from weapons, illegal drugs, you name it, they were moving it. The government shut Silk Road down. In one month, Silk Road 2.0 was up and running.
0: Mm-hmm. And that so was, that was it, Ross, there, Ross Ulbrich? Is that how you
3: say his yep, last name? Yep, yeah, okay. That's
6: exactly who it was. Yep. So it's very difficult for the government. And another thing that I didn't think about, again, until you know I really started researching this topic, was even on the dark web, we're entitled to our privacy. Because not everyone on the dark web is selling drugs doing sex trafficking the example that i used at infosec world last year was so you you know everybody there's at a conference you're at a conference maybe there are men that like to cross dress their wives at home don't know they don't really want it to be public knowledge so they go to the dark web and search for women's clothes that fit men they're entitled to their privacy Because they're not doing anything wrong. It's not illegal to be a man that wants to dress like a woman. It's weird, in my opinion, but it's not illegal. So while the government is out there to nip these illegal activities in the bud, they also have privacy concerns around the things that that people are doing that they have the right to do. Mm. So that makes it even more difficult for law enforcement, as you had stated they shut one of these big sites down, right. three small sites will pop up in no time.
0: Well, one of my so questions, have- and, and, and I know you're not an attorney, <clears throat> but I, I don't know if you've run into this, is you know when I see credentials, for example, being um, bought and sold on the dark web, obviously, if you've gained unauthorized access to a computer system to obtain those credentials, likely a very clear violation of the CFAA, right? Mm-hmm. But- now, let's say that you give those credentials to someone else or sell them to someone else gets a hold of them completely in a legal way. They didn't violate you know, any laws to obtain those credentials. Now, if I did not commit the act of uh, you know, violating CFA to obtain those credentials, I have them. Um, if I sell them to someone else, am I violating the law by selling them? And is the other person violating the law by purchasing them? I, I, again, I, I know have you're not, not an attorney, looked, but
6: looked at that in great depth. But I would have to think, if they're not your own credentials, you have no good reason to have them.
0: Sure. Now there are a lot of organizations that will go buy things like credentials on the dark web and use that for good purposes. Right? There's a lot of. Uh, security vendors, for example, that mm-hmm. will go do that and then go back to the organization and say, hey, your credentials you know, are in here. You may want to have these users change their passwords, disable these accounts. Uh, and that's a good thing, right? So there are some uh, legitimate organizations using the dark web to help those who may have their credentials leaked or whatever.
6: Absolutely. But the difference is what those organizations will do is they'll go and scan. Mm-hmm. They'll look at the dark web to say they're there, but they're not going to buy them. They're not going to, steal your identity, they're not going to resell them. They're right. going to let you know that they're there. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the line that's drawn there.
0: Right, right. Um, in, in addition to credentials, is there, from an enterprise perspective, you know, intellectual property that's also bought and sold? And how commonplace is that?
6: There is intellectual property. And one of the things that I found most interesting in addition to intellectual property is hackers can buy their tools on the dark web. You can buy viruses, you can buy um botnets you can buy you can buy the tools to build your own you know the the tools that you need to become a hacker. You can mm-hmm. buy all of those on the dark web as well mm. so pretty much if you can think of it, you can purchase it there
0: yeah it, it's interesting you know and that that stuff's been going on since the beginning of computing right I think one of the cases that comes to mind is my good friend Kevin Mitnick and one of the things that he was trying to obtain were schematics for cell phones and things like like intellectual property like that that you shouldn't have but that uh, a hacker might use to evade detection to write an exploit to you know do whatever is also on on the dark web which I think is still interesting because that again that stuff's been going on for a very long time
6: yep yep it absolutely has and they just keep getting better um some of the things that we're going to, that I, in researching this year's presentation, and you know, the, one of the things I like about presenting, and, and Paul, you do a lot of conference presentations as well, I, I always learn something myself. I mean, you can present on something that you're an expert at, but if you're really researching an, a presentation, you're always going to learn a few things yourself. The markets on the dark web change, just like markets in the real world change. Certain things, excuse me, certain things are selling better at certain times of the year. Mm -hmm. Certain things, you know, have kind of run their course. Um, One of the things that they're doing, and it's interesting because you brought up this point right at the beginning, they're shying more away from one big market, one big strong market like Silk Road that Mm -hmm. was shut down, and they're diversifying into more markets that are smaller that are kind of easier to fly under the radar.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it, that becomes problematic for law enforcement. And I'm sure some markets that are you know, maybe trading illegal things that are no longer illegal aren't as, aren't as lucrative. I mean, we see all the you know, states that are legalizing marijuana. I'm sure that's probably not as much of a commodity anymore because now it's legal in many states.
6: Absolutely. So those people that were selling something like marijuana or the derivatives thereof that were illegal and aren't anymore are either having to change their tactics to focus in the states where it still is illegal mm-hmm. or move on to the opioids and and the other types of illegal drugs they have to diversify. And that's, it kind of, you know, we think of, in my mind anyway, I can't speak for everyone else. I thought of the dark web as just a bunch of, you know, people who don't have anything better to do with their time than move illegal weapons or sell illegal drugs or whatever, they are actually savvy business people
3: Mm -hmm.
6: just like we are. And that's the way they make their money.
0: Yeah. And and I think we saw an example of that certainly in Mr. Robot and one of the seasons uh, goes into uh, how we got involved with one of those dark websites. Yep.
6: And also these are some things I'm going to be talking about this year. So I'm not going to go into too much into depth because hopefully everyone listening will be coming to InfoSec world to hear it, but um, just actually it's only still in beta, but it's going to be coming out later this year. There's a Tor um, browser for Android now Mm. that you can actually put Tor on your phone and conduct your business. I mean, pretty much of our lives are on our phone. So that's not shocking, but um, there's not one for Apple yet, but there is one um a Tor browser coming out now for Android phones.
0: Yeah, which just makes it easier, I think, for criminals to be more anonymous to get, you know, Android devices of any of any kind and and use those and then throw them away
6: or what have you. And there's a a Google, as opposed to using the Google market, there's something called F Droid. And F Droid is where you go get those applications that you don't want to get. On the Google Play Store, or that wouldn't be available on the Google Play Store.
0: Yeah, and of course that's dangerous because those could contain malicious, uh, you know, malware or, or what have you.
6: I'm glad you said that because that brings up another interesting point. And while you know the there might be the point of view that they got what they deserved, there is no security on the dark web, and there are no guarantees on the dark web. Um, if you buy something, if you buy a hacking tool and it doesn't work. It's not like you're going to be able to go back and get your money back, Mm -hmm. or if you, you know, if you get ripped off, you're not going to call the police and say, "Hey, I got ripped off on the dark web." Or if you download something, buy a piece of software, and as you said, it has malware. Mm
3: -hmm. What are
6: you going to do? I mean, no one's really going to help you. There is no. It's it's that in that aspect, as opposed to the surface web, it's a free for all, and there is no protection. There is no. There are no guarantees. Massive amounts of money move on the dark web. And if you lose your money, you know, it's yep. not like you're going to call the FBI and say, Hey, I lost a half a million dollars because they didn't deliver me my illegal product.
3: Right,
0: right, right. And, and so, what are some of the newer and, and hotter items on the dark web today?
6: Um, some of the big things this year are always credentials. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the hot sellers is medical records. Because if you think about it with a medical record, you have the same information you have on a credit card. There's always financial information because you have to pay your medical bills. You can do prescription fraud because if you have someone's medical identity or medical record and they've been prescribed a prescription, you can do prescription fraud. You can do insurance fraud. You can have this medical record that you're, you know, that you've obtained this and turn it in and get insurance payments and Um, also again, their financial information's there and medical records can also be used for ransomware and even blackmail because there's a lot of things. If you get your identity stolen, I mean, you're going to be screwed. You, you have a mess, but if you get your medical records stolen and you had something really personally done Mm -hmm. medically that you don't want out there, they will buy medical records. And in addition to perpetuating all of those frauds, they will then blackmail the people or, or the fact that you had X procedure done will be broadcast. That's so interesting. Yeah, records- I, never,
0: I never thought about it that deeply as to how attackers can monetize the medical records, but those are some really I had never considered all of the different aspects which drive up the price because with one medical record, now I've got multiple different types of fraud and blackmail that, that can be potential points of making money for the attacker.
6: One medical record on the dark web costs as much as a bundle of credit card numbers. And you can credit card numbers, credit cards um, are usually not sold singly. They're usually sold in bundles. Mm
3: -hmm. And
6: one medical record brings more than a whole bundle of credit cards. And then the nightmare for the poor person whose medical record has been what we call contaminated is you know what a what a nightmare it is just navigating the medical system under the best of circumstances. Can you imagine saying, no, that wasn't me. I didn't get my prescription filled. I still need it. Yeah. No, that, I didn't get the insurance payment. I mean, it's, it's a mm-hmm. nightmare of astronomical proportions when they get a hold of the medical record.
0: Now, it, it's interesting. It, it, you think of a criminal environment. You know, if someone wants to buy something illegal before the internet, you had to do mostly a face-to-face transaction. Now, when they happen over the dark web, If someone buys something illegal, uh, how how does that get delivered? Because that could be bought from anywhere in the world. And what are the authorities doing to monitor that? Because it essentially has to be shipped, right? Through some kind of parcel service, right?
6: Right, right. It does. And some of the things that we talked about in our presentation last year, and it was kind of funny because one of the comments that I got regarding my presentation last year was that it seemed like I was trying to teach people how to do bad things. That's why right off the bat, I explained to you, I don't want to teach you to do bad things. I want you to have the knowledge of these things so that you can protect against them. But one of the things that we did talk about last year was you never use your home computer, your home address, your personal email address, Mm -hmm. any information that could be traced back to you in any way. So anything that's delivered, it's going to go through a post office box, usually under a fake name. Mm
0: -hmm. I gotcha.
6: And I mean, the, the federal government doesn't, while of course they're interested in the dark web and they're dedicating a lot of resources to it, they certainly don't have the, go, the time to go out and monitor post office boxes. Now, if they're working on a site, like when they were working on Silk Road or, or some of these other ones that they've shut down, and they start backpedaling… yeah and following it through, then there may come a point in time where they're going to investigate your post office box. Mm-hmm. But for the average Joe Smith down the street who wants an AK 47 and can't get it from his gun store, it's going to come to a post office box.
0: That's interesting. Well, yeah, because the dark web will ship. A lot of places won't ship to a post office box, but the dark web will. How convenient. Web will. <laughs>
6: And another thing that, that is interesting for this year is, and I'm not going to go into detail. This is a teaser for my presentation there are new ways to launder money. Um obviously Bitcoin is the the currency of choice on the dark web, but they're finding more ingenious ways to hide the money trail because in some of the bigger ticket items that's also a way that that mm. the federal government is tracking is you know follow the money. Yeah. Um but they're they're coming up with some really unique ways of hiding the money trail and laundering money for these purchases.
0: Yeah, I, I would think it's probably the top way in, w- in which you can catch at least some of the more major actors on the dark web, because you can't inspect every single package that's being delivered you know, across the country, in, in and out of the country. Um, you know, monitoring everyone's internet access is not feasible. Monitoring the dark web is really hard. But as law enforcement has always said, you know, following the money is usually pretty, pretty fruitful.
6: Right, and that's actually another thing that you can purchase, and that's another thing that, as these new techniques are coming into play, you can buy these things or buy the the software that allows you the capability to hide hide the money trail a little more deeply mm-hmm. you know they cater to each other, obviously on the dark web if you're dealing if you're doing business there and there are also reputations on the dark web. There are dark web sites that you know get ratings from other purchasers that hey this you know this guy was had really was really smooth to deal with, stuff came on time, just like there are ratings anywhere else. Um basically it's the markets are competitive, but there's more of a watching out for nobody really wants to get ripped off or rip anybody off they just want to get the merchandise that they can't get legally right if that makes sense
0: yeah and then the sellers want to be able to make money and build up a good reputation so more people order from them Uh
6: yep exactly and again to circle back because this was something that was brought to my attention as security professionals we need to know what to look for we need to know and i do a lot of presentations to my clients. We do risk assessments and follow-up risk assessments and remediation for a number of industries, and I do a lot of presentations. And stressing to the people that we as security professionals protect, this is the information that they're looking for. This is why KIPA is so important because medical records on the dark web have such a high value. This is why PCI DSS, the payment card industry, has such strict controls because credit cards and credit card skimming is still a big deal on the black market. The more of these things that we know, the more that we can protect our clients, stress the importance of all of the standard security features like, you know, phishing and, Um, social engineering and all of that. They're doing all of that to get this stuff, to sell it on the dark web. And if we have a deeper knowledge and a deeper understanding of that, then we can translate that to our clients, to our families and friends, Mm. to our kids and our grandparents and all of those people with poor technical skills that get sucked down into these things. The reasoning behind all of this is either selling it on the dark web, doing a ransomware and making money, Or selling it to someone, you know, um, in the political world, if you get that, you know, sensitive information on a politician, you can make a lot of money and destroy someone's political career. So none of the motives are good and no one's information in any industry or any vertical is safe Mm -hmm. because someone on the dark web or someone with nefarious intent can find that and do something with it that is going to really be detrimental to people personally to businesses to reputations you name it
0: yeah and kind of so if you're a business and you work as a defender for an enterprise or any kind of business what's your recommendation to monitor the dark web for all of this activity that might relate back to your business is it better to go get a third party firm to do that monitoring and what are some of the like criteria that you would ask of these companies they're going to monitor the dark web for you
6: That's interesting as well that you should ask that because um, one of my clients just had a company, we are their third-party risk assessor, and they had another party come in because they said they could scan the dark web and see if they were there. Mm -hmm. So this is something that security professionals, third-party security professionals are starting to offer, is scanning for your domain, for your proprietary information, for things like that on the dark web. So I definitely think it's something, um, I know at Reclamere, it's something that we are talking about how to implement that and the best way to offer that as a service, because, you know, you can do a risk assessment and talk about all of your internal risks, Mm -hmm. whether they're technical or administrative, but knowing that, and there are some free services. There's one, um, that we all just used very recently called Have I Been Pwned? Oh, yeah. And you can just put anybody's email address in there, whether it's work or personal, and see you can't actually see if it's been on the dark web, but you can see if it's been compromised. Mm
3: -hmm. Now, that's
6: a very simplistic level, although it's helpful.
3: Yes. I mean, I put mine in, I put my kids
6: in, I put my husband's Mm in, or that nobody's was out there where it shouldn't be. So there are escalations of those tools that are being used in companies. Um, to make sure that they're, they're not able to trace anything back to being available on the dark web. And, and truthfully, if the dark web gets something... Now, obviously, if they have your medical records, you should have had a breach and known of that. If they have a proprietary secret, they're either going to come to you for blackmail or mm-hmm. they're going to sell it to a competitor. And I mean, you're, you're going to know. If it's a really big deal, you're going to know. Mm-hmm. But to find out before it gets to that point are what some of these newer security um, features are going to be, new security options that companies are going to be offering.
0: Yeah, and, and in the context of third-party risk, not just your vendors, but um, you know, the, your M&A activity, uh, you would want to know if the company you're either acquiring Absolutely. or merging with has – maybe you're merging with them or acquiring them for their intellectual property, but it's already being distributed on – the dark web, that could factor into your decision.
6: Absolutely. We have one client that we did um, post-breach work with them that they did exactly what you said. They bought themselves a breach. They bought um, an additional component to their company. Mm-hmm. That small company had already been breached when they hooked them into their network. Uh, and there we are doing post-breach work. Right. So that's absolutely you know, not only in day-to-day operations, but definitely in M&A's that you want to, like you said, if you're buying something because it's, it's valuable because it's proprietary and it's already been breached.
0: Yep. Uh, Connie, anything else you want to share with our audience, uh, to kind of tease your talk and also, you know, your talk, uh, title. So folks can, can look for it in addition to your name, obviously in the, the conference program.
6: Um, my talk is titled dark web, the dark web 2.0. Cause as I said, I spoke on the dark web last year. However, if you were there last year, this it's not going to be repetitive. Mm-hmm. If you weren't there last year, it's it stands on its own. Right. It's not like part two or part, you know, like missing the middle segment of a series
3: mm-hmm.
6: on TV. They stand alone. Um, there will definitely be new and interesting information this year. Um, some of the attacker tools for 2019. Uh, one of them, of course, is. Um, artificial intelligence and machine learning, but there are several more that they're predicting the attackers to really be looking into this year. And again, just how the markets are evolving some of the hot items that they're looking for, some of the changes, even just from last year at InfoSec world to this year at just as real life markets do the dark web markets have changed and we'll be talking about some of that. And there will be demos this year. That was one of the things that Mm -hmm. I didn't do at InfoSec world last year. I did it where I presented somewhere else and there will be demos of actual dark websites so that if you've never seen one, you'll get to see what it looks like. And again, knowing what they look like, knowing how to get there gives us some more tools in our arsenal to protect against them.
0: Yeah, and I think it helps put it in context, too, rather than going to get the tools on your own and, and you know, figure it out. I think seeing a demo first before you want to embark on that journey is good. And, right. you know, if you're not brave enough to do that, you know, just kind of seeing how it works, I think helps put a lot of things in context that we talk about with respects to the dark web. So,
6: con- And we always recommend if you're going to do, as a security professional, any kind of dark web research, do it in a sandbox.
0: Absolutely. Yes, Absolutely. <laughs>
6: I mean that sounds pretty basic but you know people get all gung home and say hey I'm going to I'm going to download Tor and I'm going to get Tails and d- do it in a sandbox because you don't I mean like I said there's no guarantees of security on the dark web at all.
0: Connie thank you so much for appearing on Paul's Security Weekly we look forward to uh, seeing you at InfoSec World.
6: It was well Paul thank you very much.
0: And with that, that will close out the show. Thank you, everyone, for listening and watching. Over and out.